So we're here at Marshall's with Liz for some holiday shopping. She's really nailing it this year, isn't she? Oh, yep. She's got a record player for Amy. A gorgeous cozy sweater for Jason. And some hot pink fluffy slippers for her sister. The perfect gift. Wait a sec. <gasps> She's getting a pair for herself. Well, with prices this good, it would be rude not to. You know what? She totally deserves it. Oh, totally. Happy holidays, everyone. See you at Marshall's. Fabulous brands. Feel good prices at, at Marshall's. I would like to know, how long do you have to stay in the sun to, to get this, this dark? Well, you know, baby doll, my home is Los Angeles, California. Venice Beach, to be exact, you know. And I kind of like being dark, you know. I'm a little bit darker than you are right now because I haven't been out in the sun for about a week and a half. But the thing is, that's what it's all about, living a good life, training, saying your prayers, hanging around the beach, you know, and getting your head right. You don't do any drugs. What are you talking about, drugs, you know? That went out a long time ago, you know, a long time ago. There are no drugs in my life. I say that because there are a lot of kids watching, a lot of kids who get off on the wrong track, and you are a big influence, and, and there's a responsibility that comes with that. So for all those kids who are watching, I think it's good for them to know that you don't do drugs. Well, you know, the thing is, this is a give-and-take situation. If I'm going to be out here talking about Hulkamania running wild, trying to set an example for all the little hulksters, i got to keep a clean track record, you know? Not that I'm perfect, but I'm awful close. I've done a few things a long time ago that I'm not too happy about. I took a few cheap shots and busted some people up. But as far as drugs go, baby doll, that went out a long time ago back in Woodstock, back in 69. We're talking about living clean, doing the right things, positive actions and positive thoughts. And look how big you get. You know, this arm is bigger than your head. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah, okay there, brother. You kind of feel bad for Hulk in 85. I mean, seriously, to be put on a spot like that, you don't do drugs, do you? And for people that didn't recognize the female voice, no, that was not Baby Doll Brother. That was Oprah Winfrey from 1985. Yes, Oprah was on a WWF show. I'll get into the backdrop of the whole event later on. You know, WWF in 85 was starting to take over all the territories across the U.S. And to get some local publicity, they went on Oprah Winfrey's very local, very regional show in Chicago. And she actually did guest commentary. And honestly, it was the drizzling shits. John Stossel at that time pissed off a lot of people with his questions. Let me tell you something, brother. If you watch this whole event, I don't think a lot of wrestlers were pretty happy with Oprah Winfrey. And it wasn't her fault because she was new, upcoming, very green, very unpolished. But still, this footage is very, very hard to find. WWF, for some reason, always has this shit shut down. And the quality of the event, as far as video and audio, is terrible. I did my best to improve the audio. I played a whole interview that she did with Hulkster a little bit later in this episode. But first, the formalities. What's up, everyone? This is episode 21 for this week in wrestling history. I am Don Tony, as always. Thank you so much for listening. This week, we cover the period of February 22nd, through February 28th. Now, one quick disclaimer, we're right around Memorial Day weekend and it's celebrated around the same time every year. So this week, as far as history goes, not as many results that you get into, but a lot of news from yesteryear to cover. Some of it very tragic. Obviously, the passing of Owen Hart took place this week, but also some very 
positive, memorable moments as well. And when you realize that it's Memorial Day weekend, in this current day and age, we kind of feel like, okay, wrestling companies won't do so much because it's the holiday. Not everybody's going to be tuning in. And then when you realize that we're right around Memorial Day weekend and Scott Hall is showing up on Nitro for the first time, you want a war? I mean, there's just a lot of good shit this week. And so we got about a dozen audio clips. I think you'll really enjoy it. Um, they span between 1985 and around 2010. There is some Owen Hart material I definitely want to play as well. You know, I think people will appreciate what we get into this week. So let's start it off. And I have to mention this because it is a big deal as far as records go. This week in 1973, Harley Race defeats Dory Funk Jr. to win the NWA World Heavyweight Championship. And this was a big deal because Harley Race winning, he ended Dory Funk Jr.'s 1,563-day consecutive reign. It's a pretty big deal. When you look at other championships, everybody makes a big deal about CM Punk's 434 days and Brock Lesnar, you know, approaching it, breaking it, and... You know, then you realize, okay, uh, cool. You have a th- 1,100 more days to go to match Dory Funk Jr. 1976, the original Tiger Mask, Satoru Sayama, makes his pro wrestling debut. He debuted at New Japan Pro Wrestling's Golden Fight Series Day 1 at Korokan Hall in Tokyo, Japan. He wrestled under his real name at that time, Satoru Sayama, and he lost to Shoei Kai. And if that name doesn't sound familiar, you may remember him as Kanji Kitazawa. 1980 mask superstar number two lost his mask in a mask versus hair match against Blackjack Bulligan. Took place at an MLW event. No, not Major League Wrestling, but Maple Leaf Wrestling in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Mask superstar number two removed the mask to reveal to be Big John Studd. 1983, Ace of Spades loses his mask during a mask versus hair match against Stagger Lee. Took place at USWA's event in Memphis, Tennessee, and he was revealed to be Tommy Gilbert. 1984, anybody that follows these shows on a weekly basis, very recently in 84, Kerry Von Erich had won the NWA heavyweight title. Well, it was this week in 84 that Ric Flair regained the title from Kerry Von Erich, He won two out of three falls to recapture the NWA World Heavyweight title. 1985, Akira Hokuto makes her pro wrestling debut. She wrestled for All Japan Women's Wrestling in Ibaraki, Japan, under the name Hisako Uno and defeated Komiko Iwamoto. You know, I've really, I'm not kidding everyone, I've really tried my hardest to pronounce everybody as far as Japanese wrestling, Mexican wrestling, trying my hardest. And I think I've really improved dramatically. I mean, a lot of names we recognize, but some names sometimes you don't recognize. And one thing, I'm a stickler to not only detail, but getting things right the first time. So, you know, I just hope everybody out there just appreciates a little bit that I'm getting, you know, everybody's names pronounced correctly. It's not that easy, especially when you're trying to go through results as quickly as possible. Now, we're already in 85, and as I said a couple of minutes ago, this was the event that took place in Chicago, Illinois. Now, as I said earlier, uh, Oprah was new. Very green, very unpolished. 
You know, you hear her doing the interview. She's pulling the microphone away. And if you get lucky, you do a Google search, you'll find this event online. She did a show in 85 called AM Chicago, and it was just very local, but WWF trying to get some publicity in Chicago, did the event and had Oprah do commentary, backstage interviews. They would show matches, clips, interviews during the AM Chicago show. And I tell you, the wrestling was fun. The main event was Hogan versus Morocco. But her interview skills at that time were piss poor, pathetic. And I got to tell you, you know, the question of her asking Hogan if he does drugs, you could hear that that I think he was not expecting. He's like, what are you talking about, baby doll? Blah, 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 blah. You know what? Here is the entire interview that she did with Hogan at that time. It's only a couple of minutes long, but, you know, and you hear her interview skills, you'll agree. I mean, this was in her infancy days as commentating, but uh, enjoy. It's the Hulkster. He's the most talked about man in wrestling today. He's created uh, WrestleMania to Hulkamania. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Hulk Hogan. How you doing? You know, what do you want to know, baby doll? I've been watching you on TV day and night. And since I'm in Chi-Town, the Windy City, I'm going to change your life, you know. Because after I get done beating the magnificent Morocco down to where he should be, you and I are going out on the town. You know, my friend Mr. T, my main man in Chicago, he's told me a lot about the city. And I know a lot of hot places I'd like to take you tonight. Name so, one, name one, name one. What do you mean, name one? I'm going to take you all around the town. What do you think, I'm some kind of clown? And, you know, everywhere. Where we go tonight, you're going to see Hulkamania running wild. Whoa. And when we're done, when you're going to start hanging and banging day and night. Woo! You're going to be training, Hang saying in. your prayers, and eating your vitamins because that's what it's all about, you know. I believe it. What a big man. I'd like to get up close and personal if you want to. I would like to know, first of all, and I was talking to Ivan about this earlier, how long do you have to stay in the sun to, to get this, this dark? Well, you know, baby doll, my home is Los Angeles, California, Venice Beach to be exact, you know. And I kind of like being dark, you know. I'm a little bit darker than you are right now because I haven't been out in the sun for about a week and a half. But the thing is, that's what it's all about, living a good life, training, saying your prayers, hanging around the beach, you know, and getting your head right. You don't do any drugs. What are you talking about, drugs? You know, that went out a long time ago, you know, a long time ago. There are no drugs in my life. Well, I say that because there are a lot of kids watching, a lot of kids who get off on the wrong track. And you are a big influence, and, and there's a responsibility that comes with that. So for all those kids who are watching, I think it's good for them to know that you don't do drugs. Well, you know, the thing is, this is a give-and-take situation. If I'm going to be out here talking about Hulkamania running wild, trying to set an example for all the little Hulksters, i got to keep a clean track record, you know. Not that I'm perfect, but I'm awful close. I've done a few things a long time ago that I'm not too happy about. I took a few cheap shots and busted some people up. But as far as drugs go, baby doll, that went out a long time ago, back in Woodstock, back in 69. We're talking about living clean, doing the right things, positive actions and positive thoughts. And look how big you get. You know, this arm is bigger than your head. Yeah, yeah, it is. What do you do? What do you do when you want to just relax? Do you ever get any, any time to just relax? Well, you know, once in a while, I'll steal a moment here and there. But as far as relaxing goes, I'm on a roll like in Las Vegas, you know. I could have been relaxing now, but i got to come out here and talk with you, you know. I know because you're I the number it. one lady I around this it town. Too. I you're the number one squeeze around this town. Mm. That's why I'm out here. I wouldn't be out here with just a nobody. I believe it. I believe it. I want to know what it was like to take Cindy Lauper to the Grammys. Is she is she as wild and weird and crazy as we, we, we think she is? Well, you know, you're coming from the wrong point of view. I can definitely 
see that I'm going to have to put some Hulkamania in you because the thing is, why don't you ask Cindy Lauper what it was like to hang out with me for a while and get her head right? You know, I trained her to get her in shape for rock and roll. Did you know that? I didn't know that. Well, I did. You know, it wasn't Captain Louis Albano. He was her manager for a short while, but I'm the one that got her head right, got her on the right protein python packs, the right protein shakes. Yeah, I got her where she can go all night long if that's what it takes to get the job done. Rock and rolling, that is. Rock and rolling. I heard you used to be a big, not, not I mean, big guy, kind of out of shape, were you? Well, you know, I used to stop at McDonald's, then go to Burger King, then down to the Dairy Queen. That was before I made a special dude with a big dude upstairs. Decided to tell everybody was like to live, get your head right, and train and say your prayers and eat your vitamins, of course. Of course. Of course. Do you always talk like this? Only when I'm on camera, you know, if you and I were sitting somewhere and there were a bunch of good-looking ladies around, I'd mellow out a little bit, but not much. I gotta go. Oh, but go. See you later. See you later. It's the Hulkster. It's the Hulkster. We'll be back in a moment. Woo! Now, as I said earlier, you know, WWE does not want this footage online. I don't know why, because there's so much footage of old house shows that they did in the 70s, the 80s, the 90s on YouTube, and it's not Chicago or Oprah or AM. It, that show doesn't even exist anymore, but it's not even Oprah taking it out. It's WWE always taking it down. But if you get the luxury of finding this and you watch it, I mean, Jerry Valiant does the commentary during the whole night. Obviously, Oprah really doesn't know much of anybody other than Hogan. But, you know, she's doing commentary with him. And she's asking, who's this? Who's this? Who's this? And he's trying to describe it, but also do play-by-play at the same time. And if I had a dollar every time she said, oh, 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 oh. I sound like the dog from Family Guy. Remember, remember the dog that took place for Brian for a couple of episodes? Oh, 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 you blew it. You blew it. Oh. Her commentary skills at that time were pretty bad. But if you want, you know, get a good chuckle out of it, go online and hopefully you'll find it. So there you go. This week in 85. 1987, the Rock and Roll Express were awarded the NWA tag titles. Why? At the time, Manny Fernandez and Ravishing Rick Rude were the tag champs, and they abruptly left Jim Crockett Promotions. Rude went to the WWF. Manny Fernandez went to Mid-South. They didn't want to just announce on TV that they left and being stripped of the titles. So what they did was they aired a previous match between the two, they did some voiceover, and they claimed that the title change took place in Washington. Didn't happen, but still, at the time, I think, it came off pretty well on TV. A lot of people fell for it. And you know what? Kind of feel bad at that time, you know, when people just get up and leave like that. I'm not, you know, not saying that anybody was really right or wrong, but it makes it a little bit difficult for TV. But they pulled it off, and uh, the rest is history. Now, something else Big time went down in 1987. You know, I know it was nationwide news, but here on the East Coast, New York, New Jersey, it was a huge fucking deal. I still remember watching it on TV and seeing the Iron Sheik being interviewed by NBC. Oh, I, I, my car broke down. He made so many excuses at that time. One interview he did on NBC, my car broke down and uh, the hacksaw Duggan, he, he drove by and he picked me up and I don't really like him and he, but I had no, and then another interview that, uh, no, my, I had no car at the airport. Blah, 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 blah. 
uh, for people that don't know what I'm talking about, they both got arrested in 87. I actually have the original news articles from the papers at that time here in New York. And um, yeah, I got two audio clips for you. One from the Iron Sheik. And look, Iron Sheik, when he rambles, it's very hard to understand him. I listened to the clip twice. And you listen to it the second time around, you basically can make out everything that he said. He gives his version of the story. Hacksaw Jim Duggan, a couple of years ago, was interviewed by Hannibal. And he gave his version of the story. Um, You could tell that Duggan still has a lot of resentment for Iron Sheik at that time. Which, honestly, if you hear the story and you follow how it went down, you know, Duggan had some, as people call gimmicks, himself at the time. So I don't know why, I mean, I, I understand why he's upset, but for the people that don't understand all the particulars, I, and like I said, I have the audio clips of them, so I'd rather them tell you the story. But here on the East Coast, they had worked a house show. And they were going to another house show. And apparently there was some issue where Iron Sheik did not have a ride. Usually rode with Nikolai Volkov, but could not at this time. I don't know if maybe he wasn't at the event or whatever, but they had never driven together before. I mean, obviously you got, you know, they're feuding with each other. You don't want to be caught in the same car together. But even if they weren't feuding, they just never rode together before. So they were on their way to a second house show for the same night and they got pulled over by police they found drugs in the car they found alcohol in the car and they ended up getting arrested and the thing is is they worked the next house show that night they thought this was just going to blow over that it wasn't going to be covered by news and they didn't tell vince so what ends up happening every news broadcast here on the east coast is covering it Every TV network was covering it. Within three or four days, it became a nationwide story. So not only did they get pulled over for narcotics, but you're talking about two guys that were in in the midst of a huge feud. You know, maybe not every show they're feuding with each other, but the Iron Sheik, Iran, number one, Hacksaw Jim Duggan, USA, USA, and then they're in the car together. Not good at all. But... I give you now two audio clips, Hacksaw Jim Duggan and the Iron Sheik giving their versions of how everything went down that night. First, here's Hacksaw Jim Duggan. The worst thing about that whole uh, arrest with me and the Iron Sheik is that folks think me and the Sheik are friends. And we're not friends. I gave the guy a ride one day, you know, and uh, long story short, I had some marijuana under my seat and we were drinking beers. And the, the trooper pulled us over, and it was in the 80s, you know, I wasn't drunk, I was just sipping on a beer, so I was surprised I got pulled over. He's like, you can't do that. I'm like, in New Jersey. I'm like, I live in Louisiana, I'm sorry. He said, well, I gotta give you a ticket for that. And he said, well, he spelled the marijuana. He says, you got any marijuana? Or he said, you got anything else you wanna tell me about? And I figured, well, he's gonna search the car anyway. I said, yes, sir, I got a small amount of marijuana under my seat, you know, and of course, boom, he hooked me right up and locked me up, and put the cuffs on me. Then he pulled the sheik out of the car, and uh, the sheik had three grams of cocaine. Uh, so it was a, a huge arrest. Uh, you know, sheik had to go in front of a judge and everything. And then, but we still made the show that night. And uh, after the show, we went home, and I called my wife. I said, you know, to the hotel. I said we got arrested, but I don't think anybody knows. She calls me the next day. She goes, everybody knows. 
so my first call to was my dad, God bless him, and uh, he you know chewed me out a little bit, but my family really rallied behind me. And my second call was to Vince McMahon, and never before have I gotten so through so quickly with Vince. And uh, you know, Vince, uh, I remember verbatim, he goes, Jim, what have you done to us? And I said, Vince, I'm embarrassed and ashamed, and, and whatever you do, I understand. And he says, well, turn in your tickets and go home, because we used to have a big stack of airplane tickets. And he, he canned me. It, it looked like it was the uh, end of my career at WWF or E at that time. And um, my buddy Jake uh, the Snake tried to schmooze it over, but he called me and says, uh, you're screwed. <laughs> and so I was like, well, that's when I called Dusty down at WCW. I set a meeting up to go down and see Dusty. And um, before I got there, WWE called me back up and said, just lay low. We're going to bring you home or bring you back. But uh, I never regained the, the, the big push I was getting then. You know, they always kept me kind of strong, but they never put the heavy gas on me. So it was a really hamstring my career. Do you think you may have had like an Ultimate Warrior style push if that incident hadn't occurred? Well, I don't know about Ultimate Warrior style push, but I think they were kind of grooming me for a championship for a while, you know, uh, who knows which one, but especially in the beginning, when I first came up, the people were with me, you know, WrestleMania three, I had a big part in it. I mean, I actually went from the penthouse to the shithouse on uh, one deal, and I was lucky to survive uh, that arrest. I think that would have uh, killed a lot of guys' careers. Now I give you the Iron Sheik, and he was interviewed by Bill Apter, if I remember correctly, in this clip. So, Sheiky's version of what went down that night. Listen carefully. It is funny, but, you know, you might have a little bit of a difficult time understanding some of what he says. But still, nonetheless, I think you'll find it interesting. Enjoy. Anywhere we go, after March, get a cup of cold beer, a little bit of medicine, and <laughs> disease, whatever, and... <laughs> One night I was a stock. I was in New, uh, I was in the, uh, New Jersey, uh, Rodago, and uh, had some, had a rent car. Oh, I remember. Yeah, and I didn't have a rent car. And from New from Newark, New Jersey to Asbury Park, couple hours drive. So I was a stock. <laughs> I didn't have a car, and and I don't want to drive. So I actually asked the sheik, how are you going to go to the uh, Asbury Park? Do you rest with me tonight in Asbury Park? I said, well, uh, Nikolai is not here. I'm a stock. I don't know how I'm going to make the show. Uh, I don't want to drive. He said, well, if you don't want to drive, come with me. I said, you can't pay. Don't tell nobody you have yeah, right? Because that, that all days, all days. Babyface and heel can travel together. Well, all days, we didn't spark our family about our business. That's right. We can't pay about our business to the mark. So Hudson said me, she gave me, don't worry, you come with me. And uh, I don't tell uh, Mr. McQueen, uh, we travel together. I said, okay, I didn't have a choice. I'm a man event. I have to just work with Axel tonight as my part, and I didn't have a choice. You gotta get there. Exactly. So, we sit in the car, and maybe after half hour, Axel, he offered me a cold beer. He was driving, and I was a passenger. Axel offered me a cold beer. But as long as beer, I don't want to turn his hand down, respect for him, I get his beer. 
and I didn't need one beer, he didn't want beer, and all of a sudden, he offered me a smoke marijuana. So I said, well, I might as well get along. Actually, it's just out of respect for him, you smoke Exactly. Exactly. No, 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 no. He never could throw me out of his fucking car. Just for a stop. He never threw me out of his car. That's bullshit. So anyway, I'm not joking. Joking there. Joking. Fucking my partner did go off. You got it. So I don't understand joking. So anyway. Hacksaw offered me a marijuana, I didn't, didn't talk, and I did it again, I did it again, back and forth. But the end, he forgot to throw the roaches out of the window, he left it in the ice cream. So we already three, we already finished three, three, three years smoke, and the roaches on the, uh, on the ice cream. How much long the story short anyway? All of a sudden, something behind, uh, behind him, they turned the lights on. I said, Hacksaw, uh, the policeman tell you to stop the car. I said, no, shit, fuck him. That's not for us. I said, well, he told you. And, he, and out of his sons, this lights come out. Because the reason they stopped him, because this saw his beer. In New Jersey, talk about which I'm not drink alcohol and drive. So, they stopped him. They stop him, they saw he had one, his hand, one beer, I had my hand, another beer. So that, they didn't, the officer was a little dodge of running. He didn't uh, recognize his oxygen dugger. And then he recognized me, brother me. Oh, Arushi, what do you think here? I said, sir, you don't know who is that man? He said, no. I said, this is oxygen dugger. And he said, and he asked Hacksaw, what do you have besides the beer? Because he already saw three roaches on the ice cream. And he tell the officer, oh, we had a couple join you. Officer tell him, you're a fucking grass. Get the fuck on the car. And she, she give me, don't do nothing. Otherwise, I'm going to use the gimmick. I'm going to break your leg. I said, no, sir, I don't do nothing. So I just sit. I sit on the, on the chair, and then I saw get on the car, they hooked him up, and 10 officers, I have a patrol, come to the New Jersey Talk Park. And we was there. The name of the town was the Middle, Middle Town. Middle Town, exactly. <laughs> so, and, uh, and all of a sudden, and they hooked him up, we went to the uh, police department, and Hacksaw hand top of the table, my hand top of the table, they wrapped him up. They went through to our bag. I had the eight ball of coke. Hacksaw had the eight ball of coke. So we make the world news. We make the world news. Every newspaper character. Exactly. Every and you were together with Hacksaw. That's right. The American Maybe one hour before matches start, and Hacksaw and I were many events, and also the Asbury Porter, Asbury Park sold out. So, Hacksaw Porter, Niagara Falls, or Grand Falls, New York, Grand Falls, that's what he said, Grand Falls. Police captain. Exactly. 
1989, Lex Luger defeats Michael P.S. Hayes to win the NWA U.S. Championship. Why do I mention this title change? Lex Luger would hold on to the title for 523 days, the longest title reign in the history of the U.S. Championship. 1991, Scott Hall makes his WCW debut as the Diamond Stud. In his debut match, he defeats Tommy Angel. So we had two WCW debuts this week in history for Scott Hall. First as the Diamond Stud in 91, and then a couple of years later as, uh, well, we thought it was Razor Ramon at that time, but uh, still interesting. Both uh, debuts with WCW, same week. So there you go. Also in 1991, WWF had fired Bruce Pritchard. We all know him as Brother Love, and I know everybody loves his podcast that he does these days. And, um, you know, he was working in the production area for the WWF. And at that time, Vince McMahon had brought in a former producer for NBC Sports World, John Filippelli, which I know some people locally here will remember that name. Uh, apparently, you know, Bruce Pritchard and Filippelli did not get along. And when Filippelli came in, he wanted to bring people that he was comfortable with. And, but, you know, Pritchard would return to the WWF about a year later in 1992, but uh, still this week in 91, and you'll you'll hear Bruce Pritchard talk about this firing and how it really gave him a new perspective 
as far as, you know, taking things, looking at things differently, getting along with management a little bit more. And I think that experience, you know, even though he was only gone for a year, I think that still really sticks to him to this day. You know, sometimes little things in your life, you know, could really just change the entire direction of view you have towards certain things and you learn and you grow. So there you go. 1992, Brian Lee defeats Paul Orndorff by DQ in the finals for the Smoky Mountain Wrestling Heavyweight Championship. It was a one-night tournament, and yeah, he won by disqualification. The footage is online. If I remember correctly, I think Paul Orndorff used brass knucks, might have hit Brian Lee with them, and then he got DQ'd. I, I don't know. I always found it really, really corny to win a championship by a DQ especially a heavyweight title and, you know, the inaugural championship, first ever champion, and you win by a DQ. I don't know. I thought it was kind of corny. Now, this week in 1993, a lot of controversy in the WWF, and I think what a lot of people seem to forget is when you think of some of the scandals in 1993 for WWF, you know, who could ever forget the ring boy, Tom Cole, who alleged sexual abuse by Pat Patterson, Mel Phillips, Terry Garvin. Um, Vince McMahon in 93 had stepped down as president of Titan Sports, and I think he had handed over the reins to Linda. And at that time, I think he had told executives that this was more of, um, you know, going through the motions, that this was something that was planned for a while. It's not going to really change the operations of WWF in any way. But what I think what a lot of people forget is that at this time, you now have Monday Night Raw on television. I think a lot of people to this day think that some of these scandals or most of the scandals from the early 90s took place before they went on Monday nights, and that's not the case. They were already doing Raw at this time. So, Also 1993, WCW had their event Slamboree, Sid Vicious. Anybody that's been following these episodes on a weekly basis, remember I told you recently that he had walked out of WWF because they were going to suspend him? because of a, a drug test. And he had told people at the time that, you know, it was just the direction he didn't like. He was feuding with the ultimate warrior. But the truth is that, um, you know, there was something with steroids and a drug test. Some people at the time reported that Sid Vicious got someone else to take the piss test for him. Some other people reported that he failed the drug test. Doesn't matter. At the time, he was going to be suspended, I think, for six weeks. And he walked out instead. Well, it was this week in 93 that he returned to WCW and was at Slamboree. And if I remember correctly, wasn't this the Legends reunion? I, I, I'm trying to remember. It might have been the Legends reunion. No, actually, no, I take that back. The Legends reunion was 1994 because that's when I became a big-time ECW fan. And to see Terry Funk fight for WCW Slamboree in 94 and have that, you know, uh, the brawl with Tully Blanchard and then see him on ECW, Eastern Championship Wrestling was pretty fucking cool. 94, for me as a wrestling fan, was a turning point where things started to get extreme. Yes, there were extreme matches in Japan and everything before 1994, but 1994, to me, was the turning point where matches locally in the United States started becoming more extreme. In fact, 
you know, just to finish up 93 very quickly, Sid Justice had showed up as Sid Vicious at Slamboree. He beat Van Hammer in about 30 seconds, but he was back in WCW. Now, going back to 1994, all right, this is a match anybody that used to love doing tape training. You know, I know recently on an episode of Breakfast Soup, Mish and I talked about what it was like to trade tapes with various wrestling fans all across the United States in the 80s and the 90s. You know, we were kids in the 80s for the most part, but in the 90s especially, just trading tapes, trading tapes. A lot of you out there will remember this, and I know some of you are going to talk about it publicly. At that time, in 94, 95, Sabu started to get a lot of popularity, a lot of underground popularity, not only wrestling for ECW in Japan, but also wrestling across the United States, the Midwest. And for anybody out there at that time that did tape trading and got a best of Sabu tape, there is a match that is infamous on those tapes. It was Al Snow versus Sabu, and this was after the match was over. Sabu put a table in the middle of the ring, climbed to the top rope, tried to put himself through the table, did the moonsault, the table didn't break, went on the top rope again, attempted the moonsault again, didn't break, climbed to the top rope again, dove off, went through, I think, hip first or leg first through the table, like you know, just doing like a leg drop, a splash, and... um. Then finally broke the table. I know some of you out there will remember that crazy fucking brawl between him and Al Snow. You would not have recognized Al Snow if you saw that match today. But the reason why I bring up that match, it was this week in 1994 where that match actually went down. And I know, I remember at that time, people were wondering, where did this happen? You know, when did this go down? It was May 27th, 1994 in Taylor, Michigan. So just figured I'd you know, share a little memory. I think some people get a kick out of it. Now, 1994 also this week, we had the debuts of Jeff Hardy and Matt Hardy. And Jeff Hardy was only 16 years old. I don't know if Matt Hardy was 16 as well or 17, but just think about that for a minute. A 16-year-old Jeff Hardy debuted for WWF. Yes, as enhancement talent, but still a 16-year-old. It was pretty cool. So it was this week in 94 at a taping in Pennsylvania. Jeff Hardy made his debut. He lost to the one, two, three kid. And this same week on Raw, Matt Hardy made his debut. He lost to Nikolai Volkov. And the cool thing is, is that both matches, you can find them online. This same week in 1994, Brian Lee made his WWF debut as some people call him the fake Undertaker. We used to call him the under faker. He actually debuted, um, managed by Ted DiBiase. And, you know, first it was, if I remember correctly, some house shows. And then it came to TV. And if you look at the magazines at that time or you read reports of house shows when he first debuted, some people thought it was the Undertaker you know, at first. And, you know, they would ultimately realize that they were being trolled. And then the infamous match that would have Undertaker versus Undertaker. So, but it was this week in 94 that Brian Lee first came out as the Undertaker. 
I actually thought it was pretty cool. I mean, it sucked that we didn't have the real Undertaker, but I thought he did a decent job. Obviously, he wasn't as big in size as Undertaker. They tried. They tried. Um, you know, there, there's reports for people that don't know that Brian Lee and Undertaker did not get along in latter years. I don't want to get into, like, personal stuff. You do some Google searches, you'll read some dirt sheet reports as far as Brian Lee and Undertaker and personal. You know, some of this is allegations only, but still, you know, a lot of people... Uh, you know, at one point he was in DOA as what chains, and the next thing you know, boop, he was gone. So, 1994 as well. Spider number one and Spider number two lost their masks in a mask versus hair match against John Cronus and Perry Saturn. The Eliminators did not take place in ECW. They weren't in at the time yet. They uh, had the match at USWA in the Mid South Coliseum in Memphis, Tennessee. And Spider number one and two took off their masks and they were revealed to be, as we would know later on in their careers, as the headbangers. So there you go. As I mentioned earlier, in 94 also we had Slamboree, the WCW event. This was the Legends reunion where they inducted some legends in the Hall of Fame. Uh, I, I, I actually, this is one of the older events pre-Hogan that I absolutely really enjoyed. And if you go on WWE Network, the event is there. Cactus Jack and Kevin Sullivan, you know, beat the Nasty Boys. You had um, uh, Philadelphia Flyers player who was the referee. I, Dave, Dave Schultz, yes, because some people at the time thought, oh, no, Dr. D is back. No, it wasn't Dr. D. It was a, you know, it was a hockey player. But there was other some pretty good matches as well. I mean, you had Ric Flair. Um, wrestling Barry Windham, Terry Funk, and Tully Blanchard, as I said earlier, Sting versus Vader. It was uh, it was a really good night. I mean, there's a lot of other matches as well, but you know, I just wanted to mention it. 1995, Hunter Hearst Helmsley made his Raw debut. He defeated John Crystal. And as I told you in previous weeks, when he first came in and was doing house shows for WWF, he was using a diamond cutter as a finishing maneuver. And I believe on his Raw debut, I didn't pull the audio. I was going to share it. But then, you know, he's he's wrestling John Crystal. The match is going to be one-sided. There's no promo from what I could recall. So, really, what are you going to hear? But, you know, I do recall that, I think it was Vince that night, said that Triple H's finishing maneuver, the cutter, was called the Pedigree Pandemonium. That actually was the finisher. But he would ultimately, you know, change his finisher and then just trim the name down to just the pedigree and the rest is history. Now, Diamond Dallas Page has done interviews over recent years and, you know, has told stories on how he, I think, asked Triple H to stop using the move because DDP was using the move. Now, I haven't heard any of these interviews. I know I've seen recaps here and there, but um, I know that DDP was definitely involved with Triple H changing the move. So there you go. Uh, Savio Vega, this week also in 1995, made his WWF in-ring debut as well, and he defeated Eli Blue in his debut match. 1996, one of the biggest moments of wrestling in our generation took place. And I think a lot of people forget how close it was to the incident that took place in Madison Square Garden. And I've 
mentioned this a few times online over the years when it's brought up. You know, when you had Scott Hall, Kevin Nash leaving WWF at the time, and they were in the ring with Shawn Michaels and Triple H, and they had that infamous hug in Madison Square Garden. We talked about it last week. And after that, they were done. They were in going to WCW. And a lot of people try to use that point and say how important it was as far as wrestling history goes and how it changed the business and how it broke kayfabe and this and that. Trust me, that took place in Madison Square Garden. I live in New York. At that time, I went to a lot of garden shows. I did not go to on that night. But I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt that when that went down in the garden in 1996, we as all wrestling fans are like, oh, that's pretty cool. You know, it's something you don't normally ever see. Now, when we used to go to Ridgewood Grove Arena shows and, you know, local gym shows, sometimes you would have a heel versus heel wrestle each other or a baby face or a baby face. Or sometimes you would have a little bit of interaction you wouldn't normally see. Now, yes, it's not Madison Square Garden, but you sometimes would see a little bit of awkward or or out of the ordinary interactions. But when that went down, we were all like, oh, that's pretty cool. You know, oh, I wish I could have seen it. But within a few days, it wasn't talked about anymore. Why? Because it was only a week later that this happened on Monday Nitro. Welcome back live to the first hour of this edition of WCW Monday Nitro on TNT. Tony Schiavone and Larry Zabisco. And we are taking a look at the mauler completely maul his opponent, Steve Dahl. Well, you know, Steve, Steve Dahl was trying to get an offensive going. Wait a minute. But, but What the hell but is what? going on here? But the mauler, well, he just got reversed right there. The mauler runs him down. What are you talking about? Look, look here. I have no idea. Wait a minute. I can't believe it. I can't believe what I'm seeing. You people. What's with him? You know who I am. But you don't know why I'm here. Are we going to get security here? Where is Billionaire Ted? Where is the Nacho Man? That punk can't even get in the building. Me, I go wherever I want, whenever I want. And where, oh where, is Scheme Gene? Cause I got a scoop for you. When that Ken doll look-alike, when that weatherman wannabe comes out here later tonight, I got a challenge for him, for billionaire Ted, for the Nacho Man, and for anybody else in uh, WCW. <laughs> Hey, 
You want to go to war? You want a war? You're going to get one. What about the match? I don't know what to say. Randy Anderson's coming. Randy? Randy, what's going on here? What about the match, Randy? What, what, what's going The match is, match, fans, we got to go to a break. I, the match left. I have no idea what to say. Stay with us. Gee. tell you what mayhem here at the end of the night and like I said hours ago these guys had to be considered some of the closest friends around and tonight it just breaks down here and I don't know what to make of it man. well there is no friendship like I said they're both in that ring they both want what each other has they both want that they both want that position they both want to be on top here at WCW and the only way to do that is you gotta kick people's butts you gotta make enemies all right all right all right hey Looky here. You wanted to Kindle, you got such a big mouth. And we, we are sick of it. What do you mean, who's we? You know who. Hey, this is where the big boys play? What a joke. I tell you what, you go tell billionaire Ted, you tell him get three of his very, very best. Maybe, uh, maybe the Nacho Man. Oh, no. Hey, maybe, maybe he get the Stinger. Ooh, I'm so scared. You go get anybody you want, because we. What do you mean we? We are taking over. You wanna go to war? You want a war? You got one. Only, only let's do it right. In the ring where it matters. Not on no microphones, not in no newspapers or dirt sheets. Let's do it in the ring where it matters. If, uh, if billionaire Ted and his big boys, if they got any, uh, any guts, because we are coming down here. You're stepping over the line. And like it or not, not. we are taking over. You're out of here. You're out of here. Now, look, I'm not going to get into the legal details of WWF suing at the time. That'll come up in a future episode of This Week in Wrestling History. But that night, Scott Hall was doing Razor Ramon to the T. And a lot of people thought that WWF was really invading WCW. It was a big fucking deal. So trust me, that hug at Madison Square Garden between those four was cool, but Within a couple of days, everyone, for the most part, forgot about it. So just figured I'd share that. Now, as this was going down in 1996, a wrestler was making his debut for USWA. 
and he teamed up with Brian Christopher, and his very first match in USWA, he actually competed for the tag team titles against Jerry Lawler and Bill Dundee. And who am I talking about? It was none other than Dwayne Johnson, as we know as The Rock. He debuted this week in 96 under the name Flex Cabana, Cabana. And um, before the match took place, they actually, Lance Russell interviewed Jerry Lawler and Bill Dundee, as well as Brian Christopher and Flex Cabana. So if you would like to hear the first ever promo that we saw as wrestling fans of Dwayne Johnson, here you go. <laughs> Naughty by nature, violent. Oh, no, no. Usually you would say violent by design. Uh, he said something a little different. Well, this is the way you get it started for real, isn't it, Dave? I got to tell you, when you got a team, Brian Christopher Flex, come on. Dave, real quick before we get this match started, I just wanted to come over here and introduce you and introduce Lance and introduce all the fans to this man right here. This is Flex Cavana, baby. Okay, get ready. Jerry Lawler, Bill Dundee, I heard what you said. This man heard what you said. You said that you make up for the lack of big muscles with your ability. Will you make up for the lack of big muscles with your big fat mouths? And me and Flex are going to shut up for you today. And we're walking out of here. The new USWA Tag Team Champions. You know... It's as simple as this. It's very short, quick, and simple. We're very naughty by nature, and we're very violent by decision. You know what? I'm done talking. Get ready, because here we come. There we go. Headed for the ring. Flex Cavana from Hawaii. Brian Christopher, you know him well. Naughty by nature, violent by decision. Okay. Clusterfuck took place this week in 96 as well. I think a lot of people will remember this. In your house, eight, beware of dog. It was fucked up at the time. I mean, you know, we were all ordering WWF pay-per-views, and a lot of us had the illegal cable boxes, so I honestly don't think I paid for this event. But what had happened, for the people that aren't aware of it, they were having the In Your House event, and it was taking place at the Florence Civic Center in Florence, South Carolina. And unfortunately, they were having some massive thunderstorms that day. So what happens? The pay-per-view starts, and it goes off the air for about an hour. People were just going ballistic, seeing nothing but a fucking blue screen. Please stand by. Technical difficulties, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I don't recall ever hearing that they gave refunds. But instead, what WWF did was two days later, they did a second version of the pay-per-view. They had replayed a couple of matches that did not air at the time. And, you know, they uh, ad uh, added some new matches to it. Now, I'm not going to get into the match results. You could go online about that. But it was a big deal because the power went out and we really didn't get much of anything on the air. Um, at one point, Vince actually was on TV explaining to the local people what was going down and everything. But, you know, look, technical difficulties happen. And in, over the years, as far as a wrestling fan, I'm surprised we haven't had more of them. 
I mean, sometimes you would have pay-per-views end abruptly because time wasn't managed properly. I think the most infamous one is Goldberg versus Diamond Dallas Page on WCW's pay-per-view. If you look at the Monday Night Wars that WWF has on their network and you see how they recapped that night, that was a huge disaster for WCW. You look back at the annals of the Monday Night Wars, and, you know, granted, this is 1996, so, you know, this was before the NWO was formed, and so we were right before that. But still, you know, we always look back at the Monday Night Wars, and they bring up the pay-per-view going off the air with with Goldberg versus DDP only a, a match a minute or two in. But you never hear them bring up about beware of dog, what happened that night, so... But again, I'm a little surprised we don't have more technical issues on, you know, with the WWE network, sometimes, you know, the feed will reload and shit like that. And it sucks because sometimes you want to DVR this or record it and put it in your library. And then in the middle of nowhere, you'll have it, you know, buffer and it fucks up your recording. So 1998, Mike Tyson uh, filed a lawsuit against Don King. A massive lawsuit. The only reason why I'm bringing it up is because the New York Times had run a huge story, a huge article about this, and they did include a lot of uh, references to WWF and his work for WWF as well. And uh, they brought up some of the financials as far as what he made in WWF. And it's an interesting article. It's still online if you want to read it and just go back and see, you know, not only the amount of money that Mike Tyson was making at that time, but how much he was losing and just spending and then how much he claimed that Don King ripped him off for. It's a pretty big deal. 1998 as well, we had the debut of Darren Drozdorf as puke. He's got a puke. He's got a puke. He's got a puke. Yeah, he was part of the LOD. I think a lot of people forget that he was part of the LOD, but he really wasn't part of the LOD, but he was part of the LOD. You know, that's how they, it wasn't good. You know, look, we feel bad of the physical situation that draws us in now, you know, with him being, you know, handicapped, stuck to a wheelchair, paraplegic, I think you would call it. You know, but his debut in 98, I mean, wasn't good. It wasn't. Now, just to wrap up, 1998, you know, at this time, WWF was doing a lot of training camps. They were taking a look at some wrestlers who were already established, but maybe weren't big household names yet. Some wrestlers who were up and coming, very inexperienced. And they did a training camp, and they also put a couple of wrestlers on house shows. And some of the names that they were looking at this week in 98, which I think is a pretty big deal, uh, Andrew Martin, who you would later know as Test, God rest his soul. Uh, Vic Rimes. We all remember Vic Grimes, Tiger Ali Singh, David Heath, who we would later know as Gangrel, Aaron O'Grady, and a few others. So the, these are the guys that they were taking a look at in 1998. So there you go. Now, 1999, very, very rough week in the world of pro wrestling. Obviously, the tragic passing of Owen Hart over the edge. It's just, there's, it, look, Every podcast for all of these years, every year talks about it. We reminisce. It's one of those you remember where you were 
when it happened, when you got the news. And I still remember, you know, I had just gotten married, not even a month earlier. And I was in my brand new house at the time. We had just moved in about a week, 10 days before. And I remember having this really horrible floor, one of these gigantic TVs with the gigantic tube that's bigger than a fucking refrigerator. It was on the floor. I was watching over the edge. And, you know, the internet was around at that time. And at, at this time, this is when I first started doing wrestling-news.com. I think at the time it was wrestleguide.com. And I was playing around with the computer and I was listening and watching the pay-per-view in the background. And then you heard the announcement by Jim Ross. And I still remember, you know when you get chills down your spine? You know, sometimes you see something that you haven't seen in a long time, something really epic, a good thing, and you get that chill down your spine. Sometimes something horrible will happen on TV. You'll hear a tragic news story. You'll get that chill as well. I remember getting like chill after chill after chill. Just, you know, just hearing that and, you know, for anybody that was too young at the time or wasn't a wrestling fan at the time, did anybody that I know or I remember thinking that this was bullshit? No, every single person thought it was real. Just the tone of Jim Ross's voice, you know, just being a wrestling fan at that time. And keep in mind, I started watching wrestling in 1979 as a very young kid. So I was watching wrestling already for 20 years. And you don't recall anything to that magnitude of saying that someone died during a, a pay-per-view, a live event, just nothing. I mean, we had tragic passings of people dying in the ring, but it wasn't something while we were watching on TV. And yes, the footage of Owen Hart falling was never shown on television. Thank fucking God. But still, it was just one of those moments that you still remember to this day. And it's sad. It really is. So I just want to share with everyone a couple of quick news reports of how it was documented that night in 1999. You'll hear about two or three local reports. Uh, one of them is from Canada. And I also included a small report uh, that took place during the funeral. And then a little bit later, I'll share with you the Larry King episode that took place less than a week after Owen Hart's tragic passing, where Larry King interviews Martha Hart and Bret Hart. And um, my apologies about the audio being a little bit shangada. I mean, I got the best audio I possibly could, and I filtered it as best as I could. So I think it is very passable. So first, here's the news reports, a couple of them, how they went down on television this week in 99. This is 33-year-old Owen Hart, known as the Blue Blazer. He fell 50 feet while being lowered from a ceiling at Kemper Arena tonight. Fans thought it was part of the act, but unfortunately uh, it Owen wasn't. Owen Hart, Blue Blazer, a very serious situation here at this point in time is being attended to by the, by the, uh, the EMTs. Uh, this is not uh, a part of the uh, entertainment here tonight. Efforts to revive the brother of WCW wrestler Bret Hart were unsuccessful. Owen Hart, pr pronounced dead, at a nearby hospital. We'll have more on this horrible tragedy, including reaction from those who saw it at the Kemper Arena in Kansas City later in sports. 
Wrestler Owen Hart, seen here from an earlier fight, is being lowered to the ground when he fell 50 feet, hit his head on a turnbuckle. Many fans thought it was part of the act. Right before we were going to walk out, I just heard them screaming, saying it's not a fake, get a real EMT back here, he's not breathing, the ripcord broke or something, I don't, I don't know, and they rushed him back. He was blue in the face, and they just rushed him out. We in the World Wrestling Federation are saddened by the tragic accident that occurred here tonight. And um, we send our condolences and sympathy to Owen Hart's family. Hart died in the fall. He survived by a wife, two children, his brother Brett. Hart was 33. It's our top story at 11. A former World Wrestling Federation champ is dead tonight. Once king of the ring, Owen Hart fell from the ceiling during an event in Kansas City. The audience at first thought it was a stunt. Millions of fans were tuned in on pay-per-view TV. Fred Rogan is here right now with the rest of this story. Fred. All right, Diane. Indeed, tragedy in the ring tonight in the world of pro wrestling. A form of entertainment which is known for its fantastic fiction is now experiencing horrific nonfiction. WWF wrestler Owen Hart, known professionally as the Blue Blazer, died tonight in Kansas City when he fell 50 feet into the ring as he was being lowered from the ceiling at Kemper Arena. The fall occurred in an event called Over the Edge, which was being televised to a pay-per-view audience. The 33-year-old Hart, given immediate CPR by paramedics, as a stunned crowd watched in horror, realizing that something had terribly gone wrong. It was like a rope broke or something. Did it look like he got hurt really bad when he hit? Oh, yeah, you could tell. My aunt, she wrestles, and she said that he, she thought he was dead when he hit. Originally from Calgary, Alberta, Canada, Hart is survived by his wife and two children. He is also the younger brother of WCW wrestler Brett the Hitman Hart. And we'll have much more on the tragic death of Owen Hart later on Sunday Night Sports, including reaction from the WWF chairman Vince McMahon. Plus, we'll take you for an up-close-and-personal look at the World of Professional Wrestling Federation show in Kansas City that was also seen on pay-per-view. However, from what we understand, the stunt that led to Hart's death was not shown on that telecast. Now, this was Owen Hart in February during an interview we did with him as part of a special on the World of Pro Wrestling. These are pictures from tonight in Kansas City at Kemper Arena. Hart received immediate medical attention when he fell about 50 feet into the ring. It happened while he was being lowered from the arena ceiling. Witnesses said the cable broke or it became disconnected. The stunned crowd initially thought the fall was part of a stunt, but it became clear it was not. The 33-year-old Hart was killed when he hit his head on the turnbuckle, the padded metal corner of the ring's ropes. We're saddened by this tragic loss. And um, right now there are no answers. There is an ongoing investigation. And um, we don't have any answers as to how this happened yet. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. They line the streets, some of them with posters and cards, many of them young fans who grew up watching Owen Hart, the Blue Blazer, every Saturday. And then came the wrestlers, three busloads from across North America. Premier Ralph Klein was there, so was the mayor. And Owen Hart's family, they arrived in eight white limousines, many of them wrestlers themselves or married to wrestlers. The eulogy was broadcast on loudspeakers to the people who stood outside in the rain. Owen's wife paid tribute to her husband of nearly 10 years, many times breaking down. I loved him, I loved him, I loved him. 
And I miss him because he was everything to me. He was my whole life. It was an hour filled with tribute, but also criticism of the profession that ultimately claimed Hart's life. He fell eight stories last week while attempting to make a dramatic landing into the ring. Police say it's likely Hart accidentally pressed his harness release button too early, but their investigation continues. I'm a very forgiving person, and I'm not bitter or angry, but there will be a day of reckoning, and this is my final promise to Owen, and I won't let him down. Owen was too good for the wrestling industry that has become plagued by promotional rivalries, ratings wars, ego clashes, and outrageous gimmicks and stunts. The head of the World Wrestling Federation, Vince McMahon, the man the family has at times blamed for the fatal stunt, was at Hart's graveside today. He and the wrestling profession are now under scrutiny. But in the end, today's tribute wasn't as much about a wrestling star as it was about a husband and a father. I love you, Owen. I'll love you forever. How sweet the sound. Joanne Farian, CBC News, Calgary. And now here is the interview that Larry King did with Martha Hart and Bret Hart. Joining us now from Calgary, Alberta, Canada, is Martha Hart, the widow of uh, Owen Hart, and Bret the Hitman Hart, the brother of Owen Hart. The funeral was today. Uh, both uh, spoke at that ceremony. 450 people were inside the church. That's all it could hold. Almost half had a stand. There were 3,000 outside. Martha, did you realize how popular your husband was? Well, um, I always hoped he, he was that popular and, and uh, he, he did travel internationally so I knew that he was uh, world renowned, yes. Brett, did you know it? Yeah, it I seems did. in death his fame is like incredible. No, you know what, everybody's a closet wrestling fan, you know, like the, <laughs> the people watch wrestling, people watch wrestling everywhere and uh, you know, I, I know just having you know, walking through airports and everywhere I go, people recognize you all the time. But I think the, thing, the important thing I uh, take pride in is knowing that they really recognized him for what he was. He was a great human being. It wasn't so much the recognition for being a wrestler, which he was a great wrestler also. Martha, we don't know yet, of course, what happened, and there'll still be an inquiry as to cause and how the accident occurred. But you said today, quote, the day of reckoning will come. What were you referring to? Well, I wish I could tell you, but I've been advised by counsel not to, so I have no comment on that. It's a strong word, though, <clears throat> reckoning. Mm, it is. All right, can we expect from that statement, Brett, that this story will get bigger before it gets lesser? Well, I, I th yeah, I think that we're going to, you know, both of us and I think my whole family and, you know, we, want, we do want some answers and... Uh, I, you know, I don't think um, I don't think that's unfair for us to expect that. Vince McMahon will be on this show next Thursday night, and your brother wrestled for him, right, Brett? I mean, yes, he did. That's who he worked for. The world. He was also a critic of the wrestling federation at the same time, <clears throat> was he not? Um, my brother Owen. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think uh, Owen or I was. Uh, I'm very content with the direction that uh, Vince McMahon uh, took wrestling. Uh, I think that, you know, wrestling was always something that we took a lot of pride in, at least in my family, and it was something that was 
uh, family entertainment. You, you know, we used to pride ourselves on, you know, it was something that grandchildren and grandfathers and so the entire family could do. And it's a shame in a way because Vince McMahon was actually the guy that sort of took it and brought it up to that level yeah. again. And then he took a radical uh, uh, course in a different direction. And it's become something very sleazy and something that it's very hard to be proud of. And, uh, you know, I, I've always been disappointed. And I I never felt that Owen, um, I know Owen didn't like uh, uh-huh. the direction that it was going. How could Mar- he? Did Owen, Martha, did Owen talk to you about the this increased uh, sexual attention and making the, the playing up the yeah. sex aspect and the viol- or even more violent the shows and the kind Absolutely. of show they put on? Was he against that? <clears throat> yes, he was. He we talked about it, and uh, I think uh, even he was more against it because I was so against it, and I I let him know and that uh, you know I I didn't think it was good, and um, we we have a different kind of a lifestyle. Owen and I had a, a different kind of a lifestyle where you know our children they go to private school, and we know reputable people and. And I didn't think that it was proper for him to be in that kind of a role when he is a family man and, and uh, you know, has to um, see these people every day, these friends of ours, and, and answer to them. And unfortunately, people <clears throat> in the wrestling world, when they do these angles and different things, um, you know, people tend to, to view them that way in, in real life. So I, I didn't want to mesh the two. And so I always... Uh, you know, promoted him to to keep that clean, wholesome kind of uh, image. Brett, do you feel the same way? Absolutely. I, I've, you know, I my kids stopped watching wrestling. Uh, I had a, you know, I left under a dark cloud of, of uh, you know, very bad circumstances. I left the, the WWF uh, two years ago. I know. And... Uh, you know, my kids stopped watching before I left. Uh, I know Martha's uh, two children stopped watching. And I always thought that it was a shame because I think Vince McMahon, almost like he built his company on the backs of little children. Like they're the ones that, you know, the Hulk Hogan and the Dietrich Vitamins. And, you know, he, he ex- I wouldn't say exploited it, but he, he made a lot of money off, generated a lot of money off kids and their involvement in wrestling. And then he took this sort of radical uh, direction that he's taken. Yeah. And he still sells kids to- these toys, but at the same time, the shows are totally uh, unviewable for children. Martha, was Owen thinking of leaving? No, he wasn't. Um, I mean, he was basically happy there. Um, he had <clears throat> a two-year contract. He had a five-year contract with two years left to go with uh, one optional year, but he'd hoped to stay there, but uh, maybe just reduce his schedule slightly. So. Has World Championship Wrestling, the other big uh, uh, promotion in the field, helped any in the fact that it runs its matches a little differently, Brett? I can't tell you what a difference is between the two companies. Um, you know, the, there's a distinct difference in the in the class between one company and the other. Um, like, for example, when I found out about this horrible tragedy, I was met at the airport in uh, Los Angeles by Eric Bischoff. Mm-hmm. Um, he immediately chartered an airplane at the, at, at the company's expense and flew me back. That's World he, Championship he, Wrestling. He was on yes. their show that night. And he also told me, he said, he said, which is so kind, he said, and I've never had another promoter ever say this to me, he said, take all the time you need and we'll be waiting for you when you <clears> come back. And I just, 
you know, it's situations like that are, are sort of unheard of in wrestling. And uh, I do want Eric Bischoff to know and and the people in the WCW that I really do appreciate that my family appreciates it. We've got all these fans all around the world that we we they've been so kind to us. I know the fan, fans even in Kansas City have been great to us. The police mm. department in Kansas City has been yeah. great to us. And, uh, you know, we, we've had such a tremendous outpour that uh, mm. I know my family and Martha in particular will never forget how, how kind uh, everyone has been to us through this tra tragedy. Martha, how are the kids doing? Um, well, our children are seven and uh, my daughter is, uh, she'll just be going on to four. So they, they really don't have their arms around it right now. They, they, they just don't have a grasp of what's happened. But I would also like to thank uh, Kansas City Police Department. They were wonderful to me and uh, very helpful. So, uh, and I, I appreciated that. I needed some answers and, and they helped me. Really tragic. You know, the night after on Raw, just seeing everybody crying. It's an episode, you know what, you know what's messed up? I mean, it, it was, but it wasn't. And I know a lot of older wrestling fans will remember this. Do you remember people just raking in big bucks on eBay, selling this episode of Raw, the tribute show? Because at that time, you didn't have DVD burners. You had VHS tapes. And a lot of people didn't think to record the Raw episode. It was the tribute. And that night, the tribute to Owen on Raw did a 7.2 rating. That is the third highest rating that they've done in their history. So people were tuning in, but not a lot of people recorded it. And I just remember people making insane amounts of money on eBay, just just duplicating this, this show over and over again on VHS tapes. And at that time, you know, it, WWF wasn't able to get a lot of these pulled. And I know a lot of you out there, I'm pretty sure I bought a copy at that time because I didn't think of recording it. You know, it's not something like you wanted to record and have as a, you know, as just a memory to keep a keepsake, I guess you could call it. But um, I haven't watched it in what, almost 20 years because it's just too depressing. I mean, the one thing that always stands out to me and I haven't seen it since maybe a month after it happened because I bought the, the episode on eBay. Um, I remember Deborah, you know, just crying hysterically. Everybody was crying, but her was like, why did you have to die so young? Or was so, I don't remember exactly what she said, but that really, really hit me. I mean, a lot of people at night hit me with their emotion, but hers, especially for some reason, really affected me at that time. So, Now, a few other things happened this week as well in 1999. Uh, first off, you know, not too long ago, we were talking about the mass transit incident with New Jack and Eric Kulis, that 17-year-old uh, or 16-year-old, whatever he was at the time, who showed up in ECW saying he was a wrestler and then, you know, New Jack basically carved him up a little bit while he he was on trial for assault. I mean, Eric Kulis would ultimately try to sue New Jack uh, many months later. But first, in Massachusetts, they actually were, you know, putting Jerome Young on trial for assault. And honestly, you look back at the case and some of the reports at that time and some of the clips that came out as far as transcripts go, I got news for you. If 
this Eric Kulis kid, who's now de- deceased. I mean, he died very, very young. I don't even think he was more than his early 20s. He died a couple of years after this happened. And his death had nothing to do with this incident. He was very, very heavy. Um, and he had some other health issues as well. But the problem you have with a lot of people is that when they are a victim of something, sometimes for people, they feel that that's not enough. So they have to try to add to it and try to, you know, overemphasize certain things. And the problem is, is that when you do that and you get caught in a lie, any credibility that you may have had from originally being a victim of a crime or just alleged crime gets thrown out the window. And it was a case in this court where Ericulus started to make claims in the trial that just weren't true. He claimed that he had no idea he was going to be facing the gangsters, but they had plenty of witnesses that disputed what he had said. He exaggerated things, claimed that he was hit with things that just weren't true. They had the videotape. Then when he was cross-examined, he tried to change a lot of his story, and the jury just didn't believe anything that was coming out of his mouth. So New Jack was not guilty. And I think a lot of people remember some of the funny shoot interviews he did with our video at that time. Not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. You know, it, it was a fucked up situation, no matter how you look at it. And as I said, in latter months, uh, he would try to sue New Jack and ECW again. And I don't believe that he ever got anything. I, I, mean, I don't think so. I mean, I, I'll research it when it comes up in this week in wrestling history. So... Something else this week took place in 99, and it was the drizzling, drizzling shits. Jesse Ventura, a lot of buzz, a lot of momentum, you know, running for governor, being a pro wrestler, very outspoken, did movies. So NBC decided they were going to do a, a movie on the life of Jesse Ventura. And as you will see in the photo synopsis for this week, the person who played him, he looked like a fucking clown. There was so many inaccuracies in this movie. It just got totally ripped apart by critics who reviewed the movie. And yes, this was just a local NBC TV movie that, yeah, aired nationwide. But man, did this suck. It was horrendous. Absolutely horrendous. But um, I think the movie is available online on YouTube if you really want to go search it out. I remember when it aired. I know I didn't see it the same week that it aired. I think I had taped it because of everything that was going on that week with Owen Hart's passing. But I had watched it later on and it was just sucked. You had mainstream wrestlers in it. I remember Raven in it. Canyon was in it. There were a few others in it as well. But still... It sucked. It was horrendous. The power struggle. The filibuster. The joint resolution. The executive clause. Splitting the ticket. Yielding to the floor. The committee chair. The exit poll. The man who redefined politics. My governor can pile drive your governor. The Jesse Ventura Story, coming to NBC Sunday. This same week, wrapping up 1999, Kern Henning, who was already in WCW, 
Um, he did a ringside interview with Tony Schiavone and I think Larry Zbysko. No, it was Tony Schiavone and Bobby Heenan. And what happened was at this time, WCW had inked a deal with Tommy Boy Records. Now, me, I've been a fan of old school hip hop from the early 80s. You know, Planet Rock, Play at Your Own Risk, Soul Sonic Force, all Tommy Boy Records. And, you know, when WCW signed the deal with Tommy Boy, a lot of the music that Tommy Boy put out, we were all familiar with already. Well, at this time, Kurt Henning was not a fan of hip hop. So Kurt Henning, this week in 1999 on Monday Nitro, came out and for the first time basically painted the picture, planted the seeds to what we would know later as the, what, the West Texas Rednecks, and they would do that infamous song, Rap is Crap. Well, that happened many weeks and months later. But this week in 99, Kurt Henning first alerted us of his disdain for rap. I don't need to introduce this man at all. Am I on here? Yeah, of course you're on. You use these buttons to turn up. Can you hear yourself now? I can't hear nothing. Turn me on. Hi, Bobby. Kurt, how have you been? Turn me on here. Today. Oh, you're not today. No, no. Shivani. I can see I, where you can make the mistake. Turn it I, on. I'm not going to touch that, that, that statement. I can't hear nothing. You can't hear nothing. Well, that, well, what are you doing here anyway? Well, this is the greatest show in the world. When you're exactly right, and you're one of the greatest wrestlers in the world. Do I need to say any more? Right here. You're the wrestler that made Minnesota famous. He told me that. Ask him. You don't believe me. We were just talking about, and we're going to see a video feature about two weeks ago, WCW and Tommy Boy Records together down in Miami forming a new hip relationship together. Isn't that more rap? Is that what you're talking about? Well, yeah, I'm sure rap is a part of that. that's one of the problems. Last week I came out here and destroyed Conan and showed everybody what a great athlete I am. Whatever happened to the good old country rhythm and blues music? This rap music actually makes me so sick that I almost toss my cookies. I see one more car jumping up and down, and I see one of these Conan uh, uh, wannabes around here playing this rap music. What is it? If you can say two words that rhyme, it makes you a rapper. Let's see if I can think up a song real quick. Uh... I'm a rap, I'm a sap, because it's the crap. <laughs> Whatever happened to a good old Hank Williams or a Mark Chestnut or a, or a Merle Haggard or a Willie Nelson song? Everybody has their own like. I mean, uh, Conan came out here last week and gave a big shout-out to Tommy Boy Records. I know he's going to be a part of it with his music oh. videos. And- Listen, I can sing. I'm not only the greatest athlete that wrestling's ever produced. I can sing. I can dance. You see me out there doing cartwheels. You see, I can do anything the wrestling world has to offer. Anything. 2000. And a couple of interesting things happened regarding some WCW women. First off, we had a Cruiserweight Championship match on Nitro. The participants in the ring were Daphne, Crowbar, Chris Candido, Tammy Sitch. And at one point during the match, Chris Candido executed a move on Crowbar. Don't remember if it was a power bomb or a pile driver, but Crowbar was out. Laid out in the ring, and Daphne crawls on top of him, but not to pin him, but she's basically trying to, like, shake his face. You know, Crowbar, you okay? You okay? And while that's happening, the referee counts one, two, three. So she ended up being your new Cruiserweight champion. Uh, it's f- funny because I remember at that time, not a lot of people poo-pooed all over that. 
you know, because even though it was, you know, kind of corny in the way it went down, and it wasn't necessarily that a woman won the Cruiserweight title, I just don't remember a lot of negativity amongst fans during that time. But uh, something else happened, uh, Nitro that week. And, you know, look, a lot of the rumors during that time have been debunked even though i know over the years some people know about some of the issues that tammy sitch has had with uh, abuse i guess that's probably the right way to put it at this time in 2000 you got to keep in mind this is only about five years removed from being the most downloaded woman on the internet And I don't care that the internet was in its infancy in the mid-90s. The fact that you're a woman and you are the most downloaded woman in any year, you know, just cross the board, that's a big fucking deal. But as I have said many times on the other shows, unfortunately, some people out there think that certain women will look a certain way for their entire life. And most recently... Everybody uh, complained, well, not everybody, but some people think that, you know, Paige is going to look 19 forever. And no, as she gets older, her facial features will change a little bit. Maybe the body changes. Right now, she looks fine. She's gorgeous. But some people will still make little remarks regarding, you know, some issues with Paige, or they think it's ridiculous. The same thing was happening for Tammy Sitch in the year 2000. She had gained a little bit of weight. Her voice started deepening a little bit, but she was still tremendously attractive. But when she went to WCW, um, she rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. There was a lot of jealousy towards her because of her previous popularity. And it was this week in 2000, besides the, the match with the Cruiserweight, They were going to set something up which would have ultimately led to a mixed tag match between, I believe it was Stacey Keebler, a.k.a. Miss Hancock, um, David Flair versus Tammy Sitch Chris Candido. I don't know if that was going to take place on Thunder or pay-per-view, but they ended up scrapping it. And some women had claimed at the time that earlier in the day for the Nitro event that Tammy had spent an awfully long time in the bathroom. And you might remember about a month later, there were reports during that time that some women found syringes in the bathroom in Newbane, and they said it was associated to her. Um, you know, And over the years, some people who worked in WCW have debunked that. You know, I, I don't care what people want to say, what Tammy has done since the you know the year 2000 as far as if there's any been any abuse but during that time she got a really bad unfair shake because i can tell you to this day a lot of people still believe the rumors of the syringes in the nubane found in the women's locker room in the stalls uh is real and you know apparently it wasn't but she ultimately had to undergo a drug test. I don't remember what the results were, but I don't recall her ever being fired because of drugs during that time. So just about everything that was floating around negatively surrounding her, you know, it's been pretty much debunked, but still a big deal during that time. I mean, Sonny was still a huge fucking name as far as women in wrestling go. So there you go. Also that same year, um, remember a couple of weeks ago, I told you about a DWI incident that took place in State College, PA. Hoovy got arrested not only for DUI, but also trying to evade police. Well, he was in court this week back in the year 2000. He uh, agreed to a plea deal and he, in, in exchange, had to spend 48 hours in jail 
and do community service. So, um, you know, you look back and it's kind of a shame because I met Hoovy quite a few times when I was doing stuff with XPW. And Hoovy always came across as a very cool, very quiet person. But for anybody that knows the stories about the overseas tour with WCW and the shopping cart and some other instances here and there, um, you know, he was quiet. But I guess when he got into his moments or if he had a couple of cold ones, you know, he, he just uh, transformed into, you know, just a, a real crazy person. So, uh, but we can't leave the year 2000 on a real negative note. First off, I wanted to play this, but you, you can't. The audio is so quick. The visual is what you want to see. If you want to see something funny, go watch the episode of Raw from this week in 2000. This is right smack in the middle of uh, The Rock feuding with Vince McMahon. And there's a segment where Vince is inside a limo screaming at The Rock. And The Rock is outside the limo and The Rock sees a, a, a trash can lid picks up the trash can lid, and as Vince's head is sticking out of the limo window, he bashes him in the head with it, and then Vince's head just disappears. I know it's no big deal, but the way it went down on TV, I just could not stop laughing, and I know a lot of people out there back then were laughing their fucking ass off. When it just, It's one of those simple little segments that you just ball out laughing for, no, for really almost no reason, so go check it out. And on Nitro this week as well, Scott Steiner, you know, there's nothing finer than uh, Scott Steiner and um, in the promo department. And he was doing some doozies back then in WCW. And no exception was this week on Nitro when he said this. You know, it's always great to come back to the neighborhood. Because right here in Michigan... It's where I started taking my freaks to ecstasy. And right down the road, right at the University of Michigan, I've grabbed plenty of women's hands. And between the sheets, I have proven that I was the Superman. And all my freaks know when the dark side of the moon rises, the flip side of the big bad booty daddy comes out and that's all about love, taste, and touch. And all my freaks know there's nothing finer than doing the 69er with Scott Steiner. 2001. You know, I feel bad for Jerry Lawler. This week in wrestling history was not good for his family. Both of his sons were arrested this week in history. Not the same years, but we'll get into them. First, let's talk about Brian Christopher, Brian Lawler, Grandmaster Sex A. It was this week in 2001, WWF had an event in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. And at that time, especially, WWF would always tell their, their employees, especially because you're crossing the border, do not have any form of contraband on you whatsoever. You're not supposed to have it anyway, but don't. Don't, don't. Well, Brian Lawler had uh, drugs or contraband on him at the time, got arrested in Calgary for drug possession. WWF released him immediately, so he was gone. Same night, the tag champs at the time, Chris Jericho and Chris Benoit, they successfully defended their tag titles in a TLC3 match. They beat the Dudleys, Edge and Christian, and the Hardys, 
Unfortunately, if you go back and watch this match around the four-minute mark, Chris Benoit was knocked out after jumping off the top rope, crashing through a table, and um, it would later be learned that he suffered some massive neck injuries in that match, and he would have to undergo neck fusion surgery. A lot of people think that it was this injury that really made him go out of control as far as pain medication goes. I I don't want to say that you know he escalated his abuse of steroids because of this injury, but still, this was a big deal at the time because Jericho and Benoit were on uh, some really nice momentum as tag champs, and unfortunately, this was a major injury to Chris Benoit. That same night, Lance Storm. You know, remember, we're in Calgary now. He became the first WCW wrestler. A little trivia. He became the first WCW wrestler to officially inf- invade WWF. The beginning of the invasion storyline took place this night in 01. Landstorm was the first one to uh, invade Raw. So there you go. And I got to share this story. You'll, you'll really get a kick out of this, especially for our patrons because... This guy doesn't even know that I'm going to bring this up, but he will get a kick out of it. A lot of you out there on occasion will hear me shout out a patron. His name is Jaram Bartolome. Okay. I've shouted him out many times before. Well, why am I mentioning him now? Back in 2001, all right, Tammy, Francine, they were doing some work together. Well, they were auctioning off on eBay at that time. Some of their in-ring items, you know, they they were still extremely popular. ECW had just gone out of business, as did WCW. So they were putting items up on eBay, you know, and getting decent money for it. God bless them. But at that time, Francine did an auction where the highest bidder would be able to go out on a date with her. And the final bid in the auction was $5,500. But there was a lot of publicity at that time because some people were um, retracting some extremely, no pun intended, high bids. And there was one person in that auction who had retracted his bid. And the reason why he retracted his bid was because he admitted that he was underage and he expected more than just a date. He wanted a happy ending. And who was that? Our loyal patron, Jaram Bartolome. It is a legit, real story. They actually, it, you know, there was a couple of articles that interviewed a few people who retracted their bits at the time. He was underage. Now, obviously, he's not underage anymore. This was many, many years ago. This was 2001, but I figured I'd share a little story. Yeah, you know, like I said, when I do these episodes, I want to include some stories that you would not normally hear anywhere else. So this week in 2002, WWE premiered a new show called Confidential. Still to this date, one of my favorite all-time, uh, I don't want to say non-wrestling shows, but non-in-ring shows that WWE has done. And, you know, you think about the Bobby Heenan show, you think of TNT way back when, you know, shows like that. Confidential was my favorite. Um, it's funny because I did not recall it lasting almost two years. They had 83 episodes. So uh, I, I hope 
you know, the WWE ultimately puts out some type of like a box set of all of these episodes. I mean, this is something that I absolutely just enjoyed tremendously. And some of the episodes were really controversial. Recently, I played you the the segment when Miss Elizabeth had passed away. And they're playing the 911 call of Lex Luger. And, you know, it was just, you listen back on it, and it's a little bit disturbing. I still have the original 911 calls that he had made because we got the police reports at the time and we covered. That's why when I did the segment in wrestling history a month or so ago, I had so much detail around surrounding a death because, you know, at that time I was reporting news too. And when I got into stuff, I would really want to get deep into the, you know, the details, but it really was an awesome show. I mean, if some of you out there have never seen it, you really missed out on some great shit. And I'm sure there's some bootlegs floating around online. That same night, they debuted an episode, a new show called Velocity. And it was an in-ring show, similar to Sunday Night Heat. And uh, it replaced, if I remember correctly, wasn't it um, Jack the Metal? I think it had replaced, but, uh, you know, in was confidential and velocity and there were really good shows at the time and just absolutely great, but confidential easily. My favorite of the two. 2002, we also had the launch of a brand new promotion still talked about to this day. Chikara Pro created by Reckless Youth, Tom Carter. Originally, Mike Quackenbush and Don Montoya were involved in it as well. They had uh, their initial show their first ever show this week same week that they debuted their promotion and some of the wrestlers who made their in-ring debuts that night hollow wicked icarus they teamed up and they lost to the love bug and martial law mr zero debuted defeating dragonfly ultramantis black uh lost to blind rage and the main event that night the black t-shirt squad of don montoya reckless youth and mike quackenbush they defeated cm punk chris hero Colt cabana and if you look at my synopsis photo for this week you'll actually see a pretty cool photo of all six of them posing from that night and uh it's a promotion that a lot of you still talk about to this day and wrapping up 2002 it was this week that we learned that nwa tna had signed don west to an announcing deal i originally was going to play a couple of minutes of audio that i have when don west used to do the commentating for shop at home Man, I hated this motherfucker. He ripped off so many people with Shop at Home. and But I decided, you know what? I'm not, he's not even worth me filtering the audio and boosting it up. I've, I've warmed up to Don West over the years a little bit. But man, at that time, late at night in the 90s, the late 90s, the bullshit that this guy would do on Shop at Home... I, I will never, ever forget, and I got scammed from him also. He, and I've talked about this several times over the years, he would be on Shop at Home late at night doing these baseball card deals, and he would say, we only have five minutes left. After five minutes, they're all gone, and then you could call a half hour later and the thing was still up for sale. He, to try to make something sound more rare, he would say that you the maximum you could buy is five, but you could call the automated line and put in 20 and you could still order that. Um, but the one thing that I got suckered into doing, and this motherfucker scammed me and scammed a lot of people, you know, at that time, Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa were tremendous as far as the home run hitting. Yes, 
steroids, you know, people really thought something was going on. But they were more like wink, wink. It was history. They were breaking home run records. And it was just momentum. And he had uh, this baseball card. I don't know if it was his, I think it was his rookie card. And, you know, at that time, his rookie card in gem mint condition was worth about $3,000. Now you could find it probably for 20 bucks. You know, maybe a little bit more. I think it's probably worth a little bit more than that. But at that time, this motherfucker was selling on Shop and Home uncut sheets that had this rookie card on it. And he was actually telling people on Shop at Home, and I have some of this audio still. He's telling people that all you have to do is buy the uncut sheet, bring it to a professional person, and have it cut perfectly, get it rated Gem Mint 10, and you have a $3,000 card that you only had to pay $149 for. You paid $149 for the whole sheet, and if you had it cut perfectly, you now had a $3,000 card. Well, you know, because it's being sold on TV and it sounds like it's legit, a lot of people bought it. I bought one. My friends bought one. And I remember going to the collectible place on Metropolitan Avenue in Forest Hills. I think they're still open to this day, and they've had wrestling autograph signings there, too. I remember we walked in there with two or three of these sheets and we asked the guy, where can we get these professionally cut? We wanted it cut perfectly, get it rated Gem Mint 10 and have a $3,000 card. And they said that if you, even if you have the cards cut perfectly, the most you could probably get for that card is 50 bucks. Like you, it's fraud to, to like cut it perfectly and try to say it had to be an originally cut card. You can't cut it yourself. So sure enough, trying to get refunds from shop at home, we got no refunds. So we got ripped off. And this guy would fucking hype shit up. And man, at that time, we felt it was such, he had so much heat on him for people that knew what he was doing. He turned out to be okay doing commentating. I mean, he wasn't spectacular, but, you know, he put a lot of effort in his work. And that's something you can't take away from him. The work that he did for TNA, trying to push their merchandise and everything else. I mean, like I said, what he did back then is in the late 90s. You know, I mean, he hasn't done anything like that since then. But just to give you a perspective of how much hate and dislike that we had for this guy. Then we hear in 2002, this brand new promotion is signing him. We were like, fuck this, this motherfucker. Um, but he turned out to do pretty damn good for TNA. I think he helped TNA a million times more than hurting him, to be honest with you. 2003, Alex Kozlov makes his pro wrestling debut. He debuted for the EWF promotion in Covina, California. He wrestled under the name Alex Pinchek and lost to Kid Carnage. This same week also in 2003, the World Wrestling All-Stars presented its final event, The Reckoning. took place in New Zealand. You had Jeff Jarrett over Sting to unify the NWA and World Wrestling All-Stars heavyweight titles. I remember this event mostly because, if I recall, Bret Hart cutting a promo. You know, this was, what, four years after the passing of his brother Owen and cut a really emotional promo. Still a lot of bitterness with Owen, with Brett and uh, WWF. And, but still, 
It was just something that I always remember from that night. I mean, you know, for some reason, these fucking Matarats pay-per-views from these other feds always had puppet, the psycho dwarf and meatball and these other fucking hardcore midgets in the matches. You had the same group of people recycled, recycled, recycled. Jeff Jarrett was always thrown in the mix with this. And I'm not saying it to criticize him right now, but at that time you would have these feds, you know, just show up and these pay-per-views, one or two events. And for some reason, it felt like the same names, recycled, recycled, recycled. And wrapping up 2003, I remember reporting this story and we broke it and it was pretty fucking funny. It was this week in 03 that WWE was really pushing the Divas search. And at that time on their website, WWE.com, they were hyping up the Divas search and they were posting photos of all of these women. And they were actually advertising these women as fans who wanted to be WWE Divas. And it was funny because I remember noticing one of them And I don't remember which one of the hotline guys I was working with at the time. I don't know if it was Brian Damage or Matt Zombie. But I remember one of them also on the hotline, just out of nowhere, saying, you know, one of the girls on that website is a porn star. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I saw that too. And I was like, you know, yeah, Devin. And he's like, no, 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 no. There's this porn star named Cheyenne or C-H-E-Y-N-N-E. Cheyenne? I don't know. But anyway, the thing was, was that somebody on WWE's website were just taking random photos of women from online, putting it on their website, and claiming these were female fans who wanted to be WWE Divas, Diva Search. And at that time, we reported on Wrestling-News.com that two of these women were porn stars. And someone had contacted one of them, I think, on MySpace and asked them, you know, are you interested in Diva Search? Girl didn't even know who it was. I think it was Devin uh, that did it. I don't think it's pronounced Devon. It's D-E-V-O-N, but I think it's Devin. And she's like, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. So once we put that up, that these two women had no idea what uh, they were doing on WWE's website, WWE removed all the women photos. They were putting up fake photos, you know, wanted to be Divas, and they were porn stars, so... 2004, you know, a lot of people still enjoy watching the Eddie Guerrero documentary that came out on DVD. And I think what some of you may not realize is that it originally appeared as a UPN special uh, back in 2004. And it was a very enjoyable documentary. And um, it was this week in 04 that it actually aired on UPN. Also this week in 2004, Kenzo Suzuki made his horrible debut for WWE. Never, ever got into Kenzo Suzuki. Thought it was a disaster. Wasn't his wife, Hiroko. Didn't we find like topless photos of Hiroko at that time? I think think it was topless photos. I don't think it was anything more than just topless photos, but still nonetheless. I mean, she was cute, but Kenzo Suzuki just never clicked. And before you knew it, he was gone. And it's been that many years already, people, 2004, Brock Lesnar trying to make the Minnesota Vikings. There was news reports all this week about Brock Lesnar refusing to sign wrestling photos, even to kids. And I remember just really, really shitting on this guy on the hotline. I don't know if we did Minority Report episodes in 04 at this time. But I just remember just totally shitting on it. It was just so fucked up. 
I mean, you know, you got little kids that are showing up at their practice. And he's signing some autographs, but he's telling everybody, as soon as he saw a wrestling relay, I'm not signing it, I'm not signing it, I'm not signing it. But um, some of the interviews that he did for newspapers and magazines that week, he actually came off as really, really friendly. But you showed him a wrestling item and asked for an autograph, he would turn you down. Didn't matter how old or how young you were. And look, he's obviously, you know, got this persona about him to this day, you know, and I mean, I think everybody knows, you know, what you get with Brock Lesnar, but I have, I have to give the guy credit. I have heard a lot of people who have met Brock Lesnar over the last bunch of years and they said that he was a really cool guy. Sometimes he don't want to be bothered. He don't want to be talked to. He doesn't want to sign something. But in many cases, a lot of people have said over their recent years that they've met him and he was a really, really cool guy. And look, I played that interview that he did with ESPN a couple of years ago and he was very, very down to earth. The side of Brock Lesnar you never really ever get these days. So got to give the guy some credit. Now we get to the other Lawler who was arrested. And, you know, it's you look at it, this is why. Remember when I talked about Ashley Mazzaro several episodes ago? You look back to everything that happened, and then she ultimately got released, and you look at the timeline going back then, and you're like, oh, yeah, and everything just falls into place. Same thing happened with Jerry Lawler's son, Kevin. Now, Jerry Lawler's son, Kevin, this week, Kevin Lawler, this week in 2005, he was arrested. Now, he immediately went to every source that he knew in wrestling, especially Memphis wrestling, and insisted that he didn't do it. It's not true. And for those who followed Memphis wrestling at the time, he worked as a referee under the name Kevin Christian. He wrestled under the name Yellow Jacket, and it was well known that he had a carpet cleaning service. Now, remember the carpet cleaning part, because it this is when you look back on it, where everything falls into place as well. And look, when Jerry Lawler had his heart attack several years ago, he was interviewed many times, and he came off really, really nice. And unfortunately, though, when we get into more stuff in a little bit, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's sad. You kind of feel bad for the guy to an extent. But anyway, let's get back to 2005 first. He was charged with burglary. Now, the local Memphis papers that reported it at the time, he, had show, he showed up in an apartment uh, of a woman a late Monday night. She told the local papers that she approached her bedroom and she saw some strange guy lying on the floor of her bedroom with only a red T-shirt on, asleep on her pillow. And she ran out of the house, ran to a neighbor's house, called 911. The police showed up. She didn't know him, didn't know why he was there, and the cops arrested him. So now he was charged with burglary. And again, he was telling everybody he possibly knew in Memphis wrestling that this wasn't him. It was mistaken identity. He was working at the time of the burglary. It's not him and this and that. Now, the funny thing about it is when the cops arrested him, they brought him directly to jail. 
It's not like that they let him go home or let him get a burger or something and someone else came out instead. From the time he was in her house to the jail cell to the court, he was in their custody. But meanwhile, he's telling people it was mistaken identity. Now, you go online and look at message boards from all five from people around Memphis wrestling. They believed him. They believed them. As ridiculous as that sounds, and like I always say, whenever I analyze things in wrestling, I always tell all of you out there, take a step back and just look at it in a common sense view. Forget about the term wrestling. Forget about who the, who the party's involved. Just look at it in common sense in your eyes, and you realize how ridiculous that is. There's no way that could have been mistaken identity. Well, anyway, the bottom line is is that, you know, he was charged. I mean, he ended up, um, you know, having, a, I think, probation, fines, whatever, blah, 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 blah. All right, so now, you know, it's 2005. 2008, in August, he was arrested again, all right? Why was he arrested? Now, remember what I said earlier. He was a referee. He wrestled a little bit, and he also owned a carpet cleaning service. Well, you think he would have learned after the 2005 arrest. In August of 2008, he was arrested and charged with trespassing and aggravated burglary. What happened at that time? A woman hired him to clean her carpets. She gave him a key to her house, and he cleaned the carpets Returned the key to her, but he apparently made a copy of the key. So later on that night, he broke into the house to try to rob it. Didn't realize that she was home with her boyfriend, and they called the cops on him, and he got arrested. So you see how things just fall into place? He was carpet cleaning in 05, claimed he didn't try to, and but yet he got arrested in 08 again, and he was carpet cleaning. But unfortunately... And I'm surprised that really this wasn't covered all that much. And I'm going to admit, I didn't pull the case, didn't get all the details, but apparently he was arrested again in 2014. So this guy has been arrested multiple times throughout his life. Now, another arrest took place this week in 2005. And this one hit home because anybody that's been following my shows for years knows that I was friends with Nicole Bass since I was very young. All right, Nicole Bass in 2005 was arrested. She got into a fight with her husband who I used to hang out with. He is now deceased, unfortunately. His name was Robert Fuchs. Um, She basically, uh, you know, this is the story. All right, and she's deceased. God rest her soul. God rest her husband's soul. They were very, very cool people. Any longtime listener remembers the stories of, going to the barbecues with her and you're roasting the pig and hanging out in front of her house late night, blasting the radio and me hanging out with her husband and going to Astoria to get these special mice that he used to feed his snakes with. This guy was such a cool motherfucker. And honestly, Nicole Bass was really, really cool as well. I knew the earliest I knew Nicole Bass was around, I'd say 19... 90, 1991, because she lived in Middle Village, Queens, and she lived two houses away from one of my friends that I'm still good friends with to this day. And us as teenagers, we used to hang out in front of his house till one, two, three o'clock in the morning. At that time, you had boom boxes. This is the early 90s, 1990. 
and we're hanging out with boom boxes. She would come down very, very nice. Could you lower the music down a little bit? I remember walking up this narrow flight of stairs in her house and it was looked like a little museum. You would walk onto the second floor of a house and anybody that's listening that ever knew her personally as well, you know, this is no exaggeration. You walked up this narrow flight of stairs and when you got on the second floor, she had trophies, photos, her with Arnold, just really, really awesome, cool stuff. She was really, really cool. But by the early to mid 2000s, she was in a tremendous amount of pain. Her husband had suffered a couple of heart attacks. He was not doing well either. And, you know, she had an incident where she was drinking very heavily. Now, from what I recall at the time, she was addicted to painkillers, couldn't fill a prescription. So she was trying to numb the pain by drinking excessively. And she got into an altercation with her husband. Her husband was very afraid of her at the time because Nicole Bass was a tremendous, look at the size, how big she was. Her husband was just a regular guy. He was no bodybuilder. You know, at one point he was involved in bodybuilding, but when we hung out with him, he was just a, you know, cool guy. I mean, he just, he wasn't like this huge bodybuilder thing, he, you know, but still, it was just really, really sad having that happen because we knew her personally way before she ever got involved in wrestling. And it was this week in 05 that she got arrested for the altercation with her husband. So God rest both of their souls. Now, wrapping up 2005, uh, unfortunately, you know, just look at the momentum of WWE and TNA at this time. TNA only was only around a couple of years. All future impact tapings at that time were canceled until further notice because Fox Sports was not going to be renewing their deal and they would not ink another TV deal until later on that year in 2005 with Spike TV. So they just stopped the impact tapings. Now, at the same time that was happening to TNA, WWE was plant, was preparing for ECW's one night stand. Now I know to this day a lot of you out there will put ECW one night stand as one of your favorite pay-per-views of all time, if not your top fives. I've seen that repeatedly written by people. It was an awesome event. Very, very rare for WWE to put on such a solid, entertaining event from beginning to end. And, you know, there was a little storyline that was brewing leading up to One Night Stand. And Eric Bischoff was going to get a group of wrestlers from Raw to show up at ECW One Night Stand to cause trouble. So your next audio clip is from Monday Night Raw, this week in 2005. Let me uh, prepare you what you're going to hear. Eric Bischoff had already hit the ring, had like a funeral uh, round of funeral arrangement of ECW in the ring. It was Black Roses. And the hype was that he was going to uh, conduct the funeral of ECW. So Eric Bischoff had come out, said some very derogatory words about ECW, and then Vince would ultimately hit the ring. And then after that, someone else would ultimately hit the ring. And at that time, it was a big deal because a lot of people were like, holy shit, Eric Bischoff, Paul Heyman, and Vince McMahon all in the same ring. So I give you now the audio in progress. Vince hits the ring and has a little confrontation with Eric Bischoff. 
Mr. McMahon, what a what a pleasant surprise. I can only assume you're here to say a few words on behalf of the memory of ECW. No, Eric, I'm not here to uh, join your eulogy of ECW. Quite frankly, it's the contrary. I'm here to let you and everyone else know that uh, I have a vested interest in the well-being of ECW. What? I'm not sure I understand. Well, I wouldn't expect that you would understand, Eric, but uh, you see, for years, behind the scenes, my organization financially supported ECW. Yeah. For many years. Nobody knew about it. You see, I had the philosophy that the stars of ECW might one day become the superstars of WWE. And boy, was I right. There's a whole litany of individuals who became superstars here in the WWE who passed through ECW. I mean, uh, names too numerous to mention, but I will throw out a couple like Mick Foley. The Dudley Boys. Uh, what, there was uh, that guy that you fired down there and then went to ECW. Oh, Stone Cold Steve Austin. That guy. Oh. You see, Eric, while I was supporting ECW, what were you doing? You were raping pillaging and robbing their locker room and why Eric why did you why did you want to do that Eric you you realize you you single-handedly drove them into bankruptcy yeah you what I I, I didn't really the hell you didn't you single-handedly drove them into bankruptcy and then after you did and by the way as a matter of public record, you look up that bankruptcy and you'll see creditor WWE for loans totaling $587,500, Eric. So you see, Eric, I, I have a vested interest. I had to acquire the assets of the bankrupt organization to protect my interest, and in doing so, obviously I would very much like for ECW's one-night stand to be a viable financial success. Makes sense. And you wonder where all these ECW commercials come from and how they magically appear on Raw and soon to be on SmackDown? How I put them there! Oh. By the way, uh, just to give you some ideas to how like this one-night stand thing is going to go, I'm, I'm hoping we'll get a little taste of that because I'm personally going to present a match that you canceled last week. Yeah. As a matter of fact, it's going to be next. It's that 
ECW rules match between Benoit and Tajiri. Eric. Here you are out here attempting to have a eulogy for a brand that you claim is dead. But you know, Eric, I, I don't think this brand is, is dead at all. I mean, Every place I go, in every WWE arena all over the world, I hear the chant we just heard. On the contrary, I don't think that brand is dead at all. As a matter of fact, it could very well be, at one night stand, some sort of a resurrection, if you would. Oh, but wait a minute. Wait a minute, it's coming to me now. I do recall one brand of rustling that is totally dead. That's right, it's the WCW brand. And just for the record, just as you want to take credit and should, for the demise and death and killing the ECW brand, Eric, I killed WCW. But enough about me talking about this ECW one night stand and so forth because quite frankly, I'm not qualified to talk about it, Eric. I didn't have a damn thing to do with creating ECW. I didn't have anything at all to do with, with the legacy of ECW and helping build the brand. I didn't have anything at all to do with it, but perhaps an individual I've invited to join us tonight. Yep. This man had a hell of a lot to do with it. Oh, no. Paul Heyman. Oh, my God. Bishop, Eric, this is Paul Heyman. Well, well, well. Look at this. For the first time ever in history, in the same ring, at the same time, Vince McMahon, Eric Bischoff, and Paul Heyman. WWE? WCW? Speaking of ECW, please remember our deal. You can own ECW 
but I still control ECW. And as for you, Eric Bischoff, you think you understand ECW? You think you got what Extreme Championship Wrestling was all about? Eric Bischoff, you're so wrong. ECW wasn't about garbage wrestling and just bloodshed and violence. ECW, Eric Bischoff, was about the cruiserweight Lucha Libre style brought to this country by Rey Mysterio. WCW didn't bring Rey Mysterio to this country. WWE didn't bring Rey Mysterio to this country. Rey Mysterio was discovered by ECW. ECW was about the pure scientific wrestling style, the submission style perfected by the likes of Chris Benoit and Eddie Guerrero and the human suplex machine Taz. That innovative style didn't debut on Monday Nitro. It didn't start in WWE. Somebody took, had the guts to put that on the air. That somebody was ECW. ECW was about the entire audience believing in their favorite wrestler so much that everybody in the crowd would take their thumb, point it at themselves, and say in unison the initials, R-B-D. Rob Van Dam wasn't a Monday Nitro phenomenon. And long before Rob Van Dam was Mr. Monday Night in WWE, R-B-D was E-C-W. And you're right, Eric. ECW was about wrapping up the rules in barbed wire and power bombing them through a flaming table. A style personified by Tommy Dreamer and the Dudley Boys and the Sandman and Mick Foley and the suicidal, homicidal, genocidal, death-defying Sabu! ECW was a lifestyle, it was anti-establishment, it was counterculture, and it was up in your face! I invite you, Eric, to experience ECW... me and it means a lot to a lot of people Eric and I invite you to experience what ECW is about live in person Sunday night June 12th at ECW one night stand let me uh let me make one thing clear to both of you gentlemen here as much as I support ECW. Obviously, I support Raw. And its general manager, Eric Bischoff. And if Eric Bischoff wants to lead a, an entire group, a whole band of, of crusaders into 
the Hammerstein Ballroom at one night stand and kicked the living hell out of ECW, then you know what? That's all right with me too. Because if there's one thing I love just as well as a big pot full of money, it's a damn good fight. Best man may win. <laughs> oh, you like that, hi, Eric? Eric, let me inform you that this won't be the first time that a billion dollar corporation came after little old ECW. You can call it a crusade, Eric. I call it gang warfare. And I will take your gang warfare straight to the extreme. Haven, I don't think that's a problem whatsoever. You know, Eric, you're going to have a big problem because I guarantee you, you're going to start a fire that you cannot put out. What have we just heard? Well, things are certainly heating up. What have we just heard and seen and bear witness to? ECW's one-night stand pay-per-view is going to have some, some raw visitors. It'll be extremely raw in the Hammerstein Ballroom in New York City. Put that out. 2006, Rey Mysterio defeats JBL on a SmackDown taping to retain the World Heavyweight Championship. The reason why I mention this match is because after the match took place, JBL actually retired. Uh, his retirement would actually stick for about a year and a half. He would return in, what was it, like late 07, around 07-ish, and then he would retire again in 2009 at WrestleMania 25. Uh, that was the match where he lost in like 20 seconds. So, uh, and he lost to Rey Mysterio again, if I recall. So he actually was retired by Ray Ray twice. Also in 2006, Tetsuya Naito makes his pro wrestling debut for New Japan. He debuted at the Best of the Super Juniors 13 Day One and wrestled under the name Tetsuya Naito. He lost to Takeshi Uano. And wrapping up 2006, we had a tribute show in Alberta, Canada for Bad News Brown slash Bad News Allen, who had passed away. Uh, the reason why I mention this event is because a lot of people may recall the wrestler Hannibal accusing Abdullah the Butcher of giving him hepatitis. I'm sure a lot of you remember those accusations now. From what I understand, Hannibal is now hepatitis-free, which is good. Uh, but it was this night in 06 that he wrestled Abdullah the Butcher in a steel cage, very bloody, don't know if this was the match that really led to, you know, the accusations, but it was one of those really physical, hardcore matches between the two that uh, took place. And if you read the reports from that night, I don't think the main event, which was those two, didn't start until after midnight. 2007, something else happened very, very interesting. Chaotic Wrestling is a promotion that was in Massachusetts. And this week in 2007, they were doing a charity event, 
And the money, the proceeds that were raised were going to go to the Newberry Police Association and Mothers Against Drunk Driving. Now, John Cena's brother, I believe, was a police officer and may have even been an officer for Newberry. I'm not sure. The reason why I'm mentioning this is because not only did John Cena's brother, was he, I I believe, an officer, John Cena's father also did some announcing for Chaotic Wrestling, and the main event that night had Brian Malonis and Big Rick Fuller wrestle uh, in the main event. John Cena's father was in Fuller's corner. John Cena showed up and was the special guest referee. Now, we're talking 2007. He's already a big name in WWE. So he showed up in Massachusetts for this charity event, Before the event even started for a couple of hours, he signed autographs. They also auctioned off, I think, a couple of dozen prizes, autograph belts. He just signed for everybody, took pictures for everyone. But what made this an even more unique night, where there was a a spot during the match where John Cena, as the referee, was knocked out. While he's knocked out, Remember, this is a house show, a couple hundred people. It's, you know, just a regular indie show in Massachusetts. Vince McMahon (laughs) showed up. And the footage is online, and just the place went bananas. Vince McMahon makes a surprise appearance. He attacks John Cena. John Cena would ultimately get the upper hand, give Vince McMahon an FU, and, you know, the match, I think, would end in disqualification. And after the event was over, they did all these auctions, and he was signing, and it was just, it's an event that I think a lot of people to this day, ton of message boards at that time were talking about. It was just, think about that. Not only did John Cena just show up in an indie event, and yes, You know, his father's involved and his brother's involved, but Vince McMahon? (laughs) Interesting. Really interesting. 2008, the the Over the Limit pay-per-view, Rey Mysterio defeated CM Punk, and there was a stipulation that night. Because CM Punk lost, he would have to shave his head, and if Rey would have lost, he would have been forced to join the Straight Edge Society. So it was this week in 08 that CM Punk had his head shaved. Also in 2008, a mask versus hair match took place. Zodiac lost his mask against the wrestler Joe Doring. It took place at an All Japan Pro Wrestling event in Hyogo, Japan, and he was revealed to be Aaron Aguilera, a name I think some of you will remember. Wrapping up 2008, WWE at that time, you could search the articles. They're still online. There's a lot of negative buzz towards WWE as far as their ratings go, and it was in decline. And in an attempt to really generate some additional buzz and attention, Vince McMahon came out at the end of Monday Night Raw to make two announcements. First, he had the entire locker room standing along the rampway. And when he entered the ring, the first announcement he made was that in a month, they were going to be doing the WWE draft. It was going to be Raw, SmackDown, and ECW. And we'll cover the draft a month from now when it actually takes place in history. But he also made a second announcement. And to try to get a lot of publicity, he had announced that in two weeks, he was going to start giving away a million dollars a week on Monday Night Raw. And this was obviously to try to get some additional buzz, some additional ratings. And unfortunately, it didn't work. I believe that episode that aired with the first million dollar giveaway was close to the lowest rated Raw for 2008 up until that point. But 
it got such vi- little press with this million-dollar giveaway that within two weeks, didn't they do that goofy segment on Raw where the you know the setup collapsed, where the million dollars was, and Vince McMahon was supposedly seriously injured and put out on a stretcher? That was their way of basically saying, all right, after two weeks, all right, this giveaway is not working. And that's how it went down. But for those who want to reminisce a little bit, here's Vince McMahon's announcement from 2008 on Monday Night Raw. Earlier tonight, I said that uh, I had an idea. I had an idea in some way to try and show my appreciation for each and every one of you here in this arena. Show my appreciation for everyone all over the world for watching Raw. You're not going to be wanting me here in a second, but you can again. Okay. And here's what I think he deserved. I think he deserved new. I think he deserved new superstars, hot new divas, new rivalries. I think he deserved to have every WWE superstar from SmackDown, from Raw, from ECW converge here in four weeks for the 2008 WWE Draft. Oh. But that's not all you deserve. I think you deserve something epic. Something that's truly monumental. And it may take me a week to figure out all the details and the logistics, but what is it I always say to you? Always say, it's all about the money. So what if I were to say that exclusively on Raw, on USA Network, each and every week, I was going to give away cash money. Uh-oh. Those of you here in this arena, those of you in the United States, what if, uh, what if I gave away $1,000 each and every week? What, what if I gave away $10,000? Yeah, yes! Hell, I'm a billionaire, why not $100,000? Well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. This is not a hoax, not a trick of some kind. This is from my own personal bank account. Each and every week here on Raw, I'm to give away cash money. I'm going to give away the sum of one million dollars. What? In 2009, WWE had their Raw event from the Staples Center in Los Angeles, California. It was supposed to take place at the Pepsi Center, but because that arena was uh, holding Game 4, the NBA Finals, the Western Conference Finals at that time, it was the Nuggets versus the Lakers, if I remember. And who could ever forget this episode of Raw? The main event was Team Lakers John Cena, Batista, Jerry Lola, MVP, and Mr. Kennedy in Lakers jerseys. They defeated the Nuggets, who were Randy Orton, The Miz, Cody Rhodes, The Big Show, and Ted DiBiase. And not only do we remember that night because of the jerseys and you know them having to move the show, 
But that was Kennedy's first match back from dislocating his shoulder, and it was his last match with the company. He, if I remember correctly, didn't he sort of injure his wrist wrestling Randy Orton? And didn't he have some disparaging words for Randy Orton earlier in the year? I remember him saying some derogatory things, and WWE was just fed up with, uh, I think, his attitude. Now, don't quote me on that. You know, I'm just going back and, you know, thinking at that time, and I remember they were not happy with Kennedy. So it was his first match back from injury, and it was his last match because WWE would release him shortly after. 2009 as well, TNA had their sacrifice pay-per-view from the Impact Zone you know, one of these overly um, gimmicked matches, I guess you could call it. The main event was Sting um, winning. It was, now let me explain the stipulations here. It was Sting versus Mick Foley, Jeff Jarrett, and Kurt Angle in a four-way ultimate sacrifice match. Now, anybody that was hardcore ECW fans will remember that ECW once in a while would have matches like this. I think there was one where if Stevie Richards won, he would be champion. If Raven, uh, no, if Raven won, he would retain his title. If Stevie Richards won, somebody would have to be bald. And there was like all these crazy stipulations. Well, TNA would do it as well. But for some reason, it always felt more con confusing in TNA. But if, st think of this now, if Sting got pinned in his match, not only lost, but if he got pinned, he would be forced to leave TNA. If Kurt Angle got pinned, whoever pinned him would gain ownership of the main event mafia. If Mick Foley got pinned, the person who would have pinned him would then become TNA World Heavyweight Champion. And if Jeff Jarrett would have been pinned, he would lose his abilities, creative powers of making matches. Now, the funny thing is, if you look back at the stipulation, I don't recall them saying that whoever pinned Jarrett would gain creative control. So anyway, the end result was Sting pinning Kurt Angle. So as a result, Sting became the leader of the main event mafia. Okay. 2010, WWE presented the Over the Limit pay-per-view at the Joe Louis Arena in Detroit, Michigan. John Cena defeated Batista in an I Quit match. And the following night on Raw, it would open up with Batista in the middle of the ring, insisting on a spotlight being put over him. And he cut the following promo. Still demanding the spotlight? Alright, I said it. I said it. Last night, Batista said two words that I never, ever thought would come out of my mouth. I quit. But I said it because my life was being threatened.
Do you hear what I'm saying? My life was being threatened. So because of John Cena's malicious actions, I'm contemplating, I'm contemplating filing suit against John Cena. Also against the WWE and also against every fan in the WWE Universe for supporting what happened to me. That's not the way a championship match is supposed to happen. Duct tape, getting thrown off of cars. I mean, I could stoop to John Cena's low level, but I believe in something called honor. Well, no sympathy at all from this capacity crowd. So uh, now, because of multiple injuries, I'm out for weeks, months, maybe years. sympathy at all that's that's all right that's all right cheer now because i'll be back i'll be back healthier than ever stronger than ever and one way or another john cena is going to give me a rematch i deserve a rematch i'm entitled to a rematch ladies and gentlemen i have hey, just been asked hey, to introduce to you the new general manager of Monday Night Raw. WWE Hall of Famer, Brett the Hitman Hart. Brett Hart? Did he just say the new general manager of Monday Night Raw? Yes. Brett Hart? When did this happen? Ladies and gentlemen, we were told last week that the announcement would be made tonight for a new GM, but Bret Hart? Well, I don't think that the animal or Mr. Batista appreciates being interrupted even by the new general manager. Demanding that Bret Hart leave the ring. There's a new sheriff in town. What I say goes. On June 20th, there's going to be a new WWE pay-per-view concept called Fatal 4-Way. Now, if John Cena is still champion at the time... He's going to take on three different competitors, all of whom are going to be decided tonight. Now, you said you wanted a match with John Cena. This is your chance to achieve it. 
by qualifying for the fatal four-way right now. What's wrong with you? Did you not hear me? I'm sitting here in a wheelchair. I'm hurt. I know you're hurt. But so is your opponent. And your opponent is... Randy Orton. Oh, man. What is your malfunction? I am hurt. I cannot compete. And you can't make me. You said you wanted a match with John Cena. Here's your chance. Take it or forfeit. It's up to you. What do you mean? You can't do that. You don't have the authority to do that. You do that and I'll quit. I'll quit this whole company. I'll leave this business. I'll leave this industry. I made it. Well then, ladies and gentlemen, on account of a forfeit and the winner and qualifying for the fatal four-way, Randy Orton. What? refused to, to, to battle Orton tonight, so Orton advances and... Yeah, but Batista said if this takes place, he's going to quit the entire company? He's going to quit the organization? The WWE? Ladies and gentlemen, let's hear it for Batista! Let's hear it for Batista! Yeah, 
I, I mean, is this the last time oh, we're going to see Dave Batista? We would later learn that week that Batista really was gone from the WWE. I mean, obviously he had given his notice before that night on Raw, but when he quit in storyline on TV on Raw, he actually had quit the company. And he was gone until January of 2014. 2011, Brock Lesnar released his autobiography, Death Clutch, which has got some interesting reviews online. I I think there's some people out there that don't even know that Brock Lesnar came out with an autobiography. Um, I never read the book. I have read little snippets here and there over the years. It sounds interesting, but it's never piqued my interest to really sit down and read the book. But some of you out there that are big Brock Lesnar fans, you might want to get a hold of this book if you didn't know it existed. I think some people out there don't. Now, we had some controversy in 2012 this week. WWE had an event in Brazil, and one of the matches that took place was CM Punk versus Chris Jericho. And unfortunately, during this match with Chris Jericho playing up as a heel, he had sort of desecrated the Brazilian flag. And it was a big deal in Brazil because uh, doing anything to the flag, even, you know, like, you imagine if he would have done what Shawn Michaels did that time? Remember with the American flag putting in it, Canadian flag putting in his nose and running back and forth in his feud with Bret Hart? Well, Chris Jericho could have been arrested for playing around with the Brazilian flag. Luckily, no charges were filed against Chris Jericho, but WWE was forced to make some type of disciplinary action. So WWE almost immediately had suspended Chris Jericho, for uh, what took place in Brazil with the flag. He had publicly apologized, and honestly, everybody and their mother believed his apology to be sincere. Um, He was just playing the heel, and it went a little bit too far. And he would be suspended for a month. He would return to WWE television June 25th. And wrapping up this week's episode, 2013, WWE signs Callisto. 2015, Sami Zayn undergoes shoulder surgery. If you've been following the episodes, we talked recently about Sami Zayn facing John Cena with the shoulder injury. Well, it was this week in 15 that he would undergo that surgery. I think a lot of people forget that he did not return until after the end of the year. He was gone for about, what, seven, eight months minimum? So this was a pretty serious surgery, and kudos for him for, you know, working the match against John Cena. 2015 as well, we had some controversy on television. Destination America announces that it has picked up Ring of Honor. Now remember, it was a week ago that Destination America had announced that they were likely going to be removing TNA programming from their network at the end of the summer. Well, apparently TNA had no idea that Destination America had had some negotiations with Ring of Honor. I don't know if TNA and Destination America ever had some type of exclusivity clause, you know, where they would be the only wrestling promotion on their channel. But Destination America, less than a week later, announced that it uh, worked out a deal with Ring of Honor. But a lot of fans liked the idea because for a little while, we had Ring of Honor airing on Destination America at 8 o'clock. 
and Impact airing at 9 o'clock. So you had wrestling back-to-back. And it was interesting because we would always compare the ratings of Ring of Honor to TNA and, you know, vice versa. You look back on it, and the ratings were not all that good, you know, but it was an interesting time, albeit a short period of time, to have Ring of Honor and Impact airing on the same network back-to-back. So there you go. Notable birthdays this week, those celebrating birthdays who are no longer with us. Happy birthday, Don Curtis, Jess McMahon, Mick McManus, Brian Pillman, Donna Christianello, and Buddy Wayne. Happy birthday to all of you. Kamala turned 68, Super Parker 62, Doc Journey 61. Eric Bischoff and Barry O turned 60. Kelly Kanitsky turns 58. Hiro Saito, 57. Scott Putsky, Tenibles Jr., and Mysterioso turn 52. Selena Majors turns 51. Simon Diamond, 50. Halloween and Headbanger Mosh turn 47. Tamino turns 46. Tracy Brooks, Ricky Bandaris, and Super Dragon, 43. Alberto El Patron and Jeremy Borash turn 41. Elijah Burke and Dan Rodimer turn 40. Ashley Mazzaro turns 39. Daniel Bryan and El Fantasma Jr. turn 37. Natty, happy birthday. She turns 36. Alex Shelley, 35. CJ O'Doyle at 34. Roman Reigns, 33. Seth Rollins, 32. Bray Wyatt and Shota Nakagawa, 31. Santana Garrett turns 30. And last but not least, happy birthday, Bo Dallas. He turns 28. Notable debuts this week in history. Some I already mentioned during the show. Super Parker, an original Tiger Mask, debuted in 1976. Al Snow debuted in 82. Akira Hokuto in 1985. Hollow Wicked, Icarus, Ultramantis, and Mr. Zero debuted in 02. Alex Kozlov in 2003. And Tetsuya Naito in 2006. And finally, those who passed away this week in wrestling history, James Dudley. That's a name I know a lot of you have heard about before. He's a WWE Hall of Famer, most known for being Vince's limo driver. He passed away at age 94. Hans Schmidt died at age 87. John Tolos at 76. Frankie Lane at 73. Chief White Owl at 72. Buck Robley at 71. Vincent J. McMahon Sr., the father of Vince Jr., died at 69. Bull Ramos at 68. Rudy Kay at 65. Johnny Rougeau at 53. Mammoth Suzuki died at age 50. Billy Hines, 48. Hector Garza at 43. Ray Candy at 42. Owen Hart died at 34. DJ Peterson at 33. Jack Donovan at 30. I will get back to Jack Donovan in a moment. Uh, Brian Ong at 27. And Spider at 22. Now, the reason why I have to go back to Jack Donovan is because I know a lot of you old school fans will say, wait a minute, Jack Donovan, age 30. No, 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 no. He was age 76 when he died. There's actually two Jack Donovans in wrestling history. The one that I'm referencing to this week died in 1940 at the age of 30 due to a tragic auto accident. The Jack Donovan that a lot of you know is Dandy Jack Donovan, who did not die until the year 2004, and he was 76. So I just wanted to clarify that. And with that, I thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of This Week in Wrestling History. Make sure you follow me on Twitter at DonTonyD. Email me, DonTony at DonTony.com, the website DonTony.com. 
facebook.com slash DTKC show. And if you like what we do and you want to help support the shows financially, help us keep the bills paid, keep the lights on, keep these shows free for everyone, consider our Patreon page. It is patreon.com slash Don Tony. I know I hype it every week. It's a very small, tight-knit family there. Not only for as little as five bucks can you really help us with the expenses. I know five doesn't sound like a lot, but if you get 10, 20, 50, 100 people sign up with that contribution, it really helps us with the expenses. And believe me, you know, everybody wants to have, you know, hundreds of, if not millions of viewers tuning in or listeners. But when you get the bills for the behind the scenes and everything that's involved to maintain those listeners and nobody having interruptions and buffers and things being down, it really does add up. So not only will you help us with the expenses, but we actually have a lot of cool shit going on on our Patreon page. Yours truly and Anthony Missionary Thomas of Wrestling Soup. Every other week we do a show called Breakfast Soup. Uh, There's over 50 episodes there right now, as it is. Kevin Castle, for everybody that always asks to hear him do a solo show, he has about 50 episodes of his solo show up there as well. You're talking hundreds and hundreds of hours of exclusive content on Patreon. We put up early releases of this show, the pay-per-view recaps. We do predictions, contests, giveaways, There is a plethora of stuff going on over there. So sign up, give it a shot. I promise you, you will not be disappointed. Patreon.com slash Don Tony. Everyone be well. Enjoy the rest of the week. I will be back once again in seven days with your next episode of This Week in Wrestling History. Take care, everyone. Ciao. I haven't really woken up until I've had my McDonald's breakfast deal. And I know this is true because before breakfast, I put my phone in the refrigerator and couldn't find the keys that were already in my hand. Nothing gets the morning going like the first sip of an iced coffee. Get any size and any flavor for 99 cents until 11 a.m. Price and participation may vary. McDonald's. I'm loving it. Everybody needs just the right amount of fuel to get going in the morning. For some, a nice McDonald's egg and cheese bagel is just enough to do it. Others might prefer a McDonald's bacon egg and cheese bagel. Or perhaps a sausage egg and cheese bagel. And there are those where nothing will do but a hearty McDonald's steak egg and cheese bagel. Four different breakfast bagels to get you going. Tomorrow morning, give your engine a head start at participating McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.